This episode is brought to you by 511 Tactical, a company that I've used for well over a decade, and they have created a limited edition Everyday Hero shirt. There are only 2,000 of them available, and 100% of the proceeds are going to go to charity, and on top of that, for every purchase, they're going to donate an N95 mask to first responders in New York City, which is certainly one of the hardest hit areas in America during this crisis. And on top of that, as always, they still are offering the 15 percent discount to all listeners of Behind the Shield using the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5. And I just want to go over some of the products that I've featured in the past that I think are incredible. So you have the Norris sneaker, which I think is a great, comfortable alternative to the heavy, cumbersome duty boot. You have the uniforms, some of which I wore over a decade ago in Anaheim Fire, which I think are some of the most comfortable and come in a variety of fits to make sure they actually do fit the responder. The AMP backpack, which I've used from hiking to loading with plates on a cruise ship to exercise in, to traveling across the world when I see family and do interviews. And then more recently, the shorts and the jeans are incredibly comfortable. I've been using them as well and some of the flashlights. So there are so many things that will add value to your work life and your home life in their catalog of products. So just to reiterate again, go to 511 Tactical, that's 511-T-A-C-T-I-C-A-L.com. Use the code SHIELD15, save 15% and make a difference in your community. Welcome to episode 314 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week I am so excited to welcome on the show veteran firefighter Danny Dwyer. Now, for those of you in the fire service, I'm sure that name is familiar. For those who maybe don't recognize it, Danny was the fireman who recently made a rescue, pulled an elderly lady out of a structure fire, and then was promptly written up and disciplined by his department. So this episode is not about blaming. It's not about pointing fingers. It is about addressing a systemic problem we have in the fire service. So we touch on some what may be known as hot button areas, and that is a very deliberate thing. This is a profession where lives are at stake. And if politics and other factors that come in that aren't adding to the increased survival of the people that we serve, then we have an issue. So the things that we discuss are to facilitate change. They are to bring solutions to problems. When we stand on the grinder, when we pin that badge on our chest, we took an oath to protect the people that we serve in our community. We have ownership as the individual to be the best version of ourselves and our employers and the councils and cities that we work for and the taxpayers also have a responsibility to create an environment for us to thrive, to increase and maximize the chance that we will save a life when we are called. Anything that gets in the way of that is something that is a cancer in our profession. And I hope this conversation helps addresses and brings some of those out of the shadows and into the light where they belong. Now, before we get to this interview, as I say every single week, please go to whichever app you listen to this podcast on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback and leave a rating. The five-star ratings really do help make this podcast more visible for people looking for a project like this. And then, as I underline every week, this is a free library for you, the audience, whether it's an individual, a department, a crew, and I want you to use them. And all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories. So all I ask is you share these incredible men and women's life stories and life's work so we can get them to every single person on planet Earth that needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you my friend, Danny Dwyer. Enjoy. 
Mr. Danny, I want to say thank you so much for taking the time to come on the Behind the Shield podcast. I know that we talked a while ago, kind of when this thing blew up, and I wanted to wait until the dust settled, and I think now is the perfect time. So welcome. Thank you very much for having me, James. This is, um, like I said, I'm, I'm super excited to be uh, and thankful to be a part of this. This is going to be great. It is indeed. All right. Where on planet Earth are we finding you today? Uh, I am currently sitting in my home office in Canton, Georgia, which is about um, 40 minutes, 45 minutes north of downtown Atlanta. Brilliant. So in the new department we'll talk about, are you actually closer to home too? Uh, mileage wise, yes, but the ride is about the same just because, uh, there's no real good way to get there from where I live. So there's no interstate access. So it's, uh, it's all back roads, but it's a beautiful drive and, um, through a, a really nice part of, uh, North Metro Atlanta. So it's, uh, it's, it's a nice little ride for me. Excellent. All right. Well, so as you know, I'd like to start at the very beginning. So where were you born and what was your family dynamic like? So I was born in, uh, San Francisco, California in 1979, um, I uh, was raised about 30 minutes north of San Francisco in Marin County. Uh, my mom and dad uh, initially were uh, one big happy family. And uh, we had a, I had a little sister uh, three years and one day after my birthday. And um, my parents were together until I was five years old. They separated and got a divorce eventually. Um, so I saw my dad every other weekend for the next um, six years. Uh, you know, which was, um, it was tough. It wasn't easy, but it, you know, it, it, it was just life back then. It just, it, you know, I didn't know anything different. And thankfully, you know, when my parents did get divorced, I don't remember a whole lot about it. I don't know if that was because of my age or maybe blocking it out at some point, but I don't remember there being like a big, nasty shakeup. Um, so yeah, uh, lived in Northern California until I was uh, 11 years old and my mom got in. She went back to college when I was seven, I believe, and got her undergrad out of the way. And then um, we moved to Baton Rouge, Louisiana for her to complete her master's, pro, uh, master's degree at LSU. And uh, we were intending on only going for two years and two years came and went. She asked us if we wanted to move back to California and my sister and I both um, loved Louisiana, and we were like, absolutely not. We're super happy here. So um, that was kind of a bummer as far as not being able to see my dad and grandparents and aunts and uncles, but, uh, you know, just a few times a year. But it was it was good for us. It was good to get out of California when we did. Um, and growing up in Louisiana uh, was phenomenal. Um, it's a, It was a totally different um, it's a different world. You know, the South versus the North is, is obviously a big cultural shock anyway, but Louisiana is almost its own country. So it was really neat growing up there. Um, so yeah, we, um, we elected to stay in Louisiana and, you know, I was making my way through high school and my mom met, uh, her now husband in 93 ish. So we moved just to back up. We moved in August of 90, uh, to Louisiana. So, um, she met her husband in 93, 94. Uh, he was transferred to Fort McPherson here in Atlanta in 1995. And we had to move to Atlanta. And I think I was the only one that really wasn't too keen on that, but, uh, I'm the last one here and, and, and love it. So, uh, my sister, uh, moved back to Louisiana to attend LSU after, um, after high school. And my mom and stepdad, uh, were transferred again up to Annapolis, Maryland, where they stayed for the next 15 or so years. So, um, I've been here since 
uh, June of 1995. And uh, again, initially was not a big fan of moving to Atlanta, but I love it. It's home now. And, you know, here we sit. So everything puts you in the right direction for, you know, put you, uh, put you on a path for a reason, right? Absolutely. Now, did you have any first responders in your family? Um, I did not. No, I'm the first one. Um, <clears throat> I had a, a light introduction to the fire department at a really young age. My mom uh, dated a guy that worked for the city of San Francisco. Um, so I do remember going to the firehouse to see him when I was pretty young. And, you know, like any young boy growing up, I thought it was cool, loved the fire trucks and stuff like that. But um, it was not really in my wheelhouse until um, until after high school. So, uh, yeah, it was just, just kind of fell into it um, with a stroke of luck, I guess. Right. So we're going to school then, what about athletics? Were you a sportsman when you were younger? I did. Um, you know, I played soccer as a really young kid. Um, I started swimming competitively in, I think I was six or seven years old, maybe. And I swam all the way through my sophomore year in high school. Um, the move to Atlanta kind of, uh, kind of screwed that up. Um, you know, I was not in a very good headspace when I moved here. Um, I didn't, like I said before, I, you know, I didn't want to be here just flat out. So I was kind of, um, withdrew from everything and didn't want to swim. And I was actually approached by the swim coach at my high school. And, uh, he found out through the grapevine that I'd placed really well the year before at the state championships and convinced me to come out and practice. So I swam, uh, for about a week and a half and, uh, had been out of the pool for a really long time. I uh, got about a week's worth of practice in and one meet and I was just, I was miserable. And, you know, it just, like I said, I wasn't in a very good headspace with everything. So, uh, unfortunately I quit swimming. Um, but I did play football through middle school and, um, that's really it, I think. So I think one season playing basketball and I was terrible at it. So <laughs> <feed>. <laughs> Now fast forwarding to the uh, fire service for a moment. Did you notice that once you started using SCBA that your breath control was good from the swimming? Because that's something that they always talk about with swimmers, that their breath control is usually good, however it pertains to sports later in life. You know, until you just mentioned that, I never really thought about that. But I, I have always been able to um, conserve a cylinder pretty well. Um, that's a very good That's a very good thought. It, it, it very well could have. Yeah, I don't know for sure, but that makes a lot of sense. Interesting. All right. Well, then back in school, what were your career aspirations then at that time? Um, you know, when I was in Louisiana, um, I think I was going to, you know, I would have attended college um, because all my friends were, which um, uh, I don't know what would have happened um, through college. I didn't really have anything, have my heart set on anything at the time in my early high school years. When I moved to Georgia, um, things kind of changed and um, I wasn't doing very well in school. I you know, I always had a hard time learning and, and um, it's debatable whether I had any kind of ADD or something like that. I was never on medication for it, but uh, my mom is an educator and has been for many, many, many years and swears up and down that I, I hit all the all the marks for it. So um, in high school, my later two years of high school, um, I had serious aspirations of going into the military and uh that uh, was shot down due to an, uh, an ankle injury that was uh, just a, a benign bone tumor I had when I was in eighth grade. And I basically could do all rear echelon, um, not fun stuff in the military. The, the MOSs that were available to me were, were nothing that I, nothing that I wanted to do. I wanted to be, you know, out in the front and, and doing all the cool stuff. So that went out the window. 
So I kind of um, floundered for a little while right out of high school. Um, I tested for one department um, locally, the, a suburban department, did not do well on the initial entrance exam. There was it, the test at the time, I think it's changed now, was was super, super difficult. And I was, you know, a wet behind the ears, 18 year old kid. Um, so I didn't do very well. Uh, worked a couple just random jobs and then tested for two other departments, almost back to back, about two weeks apart and got a call from the first one, uh, which is the county that I live in now and accepted a position with them in January of 1999. So um, that's how I got my start. Right. So obviously our first impression is usually a you know, pretty solid uh, impact on setting the bar for our career. Did they have a high bar set? Were you held to a high standard in that first uh, department? Yeah, we were held to a pretty high standard. It was still, um, it was still very much a, uh, it was a, it was a weird dynamic with the department. So the South end of the County had been a paid, fully paid uh, department for gosh, I think since the mid seventies at that point. And, uh, you you know, we were riding four and five on every rig. There were five engines on the south side that comprised one district. And then the, everything north of that district was all volunteer. So there were a lot of growing pains. So, yeah, they, you know, they, uh, we were held to a pretty high standard. They did not, you know, they were all about training. If you wanted to go somewhere to the State Fire Academy here in Georgia or, you know, anywhere you wanted to go to train, they they were all about it. They, they never gave you any grief as far as going and taking classes. They encouraged it. Um, I do believe they paid for some stuff, uh, maybe if I remember correctly, but it, it was a great department. Um, I loved it. I had no intentions of leaving. I remember walking out when I was probably 19 years old, looking back at the firehouse after taking the trash out at night and just being like, wow, I got it. I made it. This is what I've always wanted. And then as I got a little bit older and, you know, educating myself a little bit more, um, I kind of felt like I was outgrowing. There was more stuff in the fire service that I wanted to do that I could not provide or, or that the county I was with at the time couldn't provide me. So um, I elected to start applying. I applied with uh, the city of Atlanta and DeKalb County Fire Department, which is uh, due east of downtown Atlanta. Uh, we share a border with each other. We run calls with each other. Uh, very busy department um, and got accepted with them in 2003. Um, you know, I had several attempts with the city of Atlanta, uh, in the early two thousands and never got picked up for whatever reason. And, um, so I was like, well, shoot, my buddy said, why don't you apply for the cab? So I applied for the cab. I go there and loved it. I had a blast. They'd go to a ton of fire. Um, I really enjoyed my time over there, but I always had the city kind of tugging at me and, um, always wanted to be there. So I got a call from, uh, their, their department, the department in late 2004 and ended up going to the city of Atlanta in, in February of 2005. Right. So then obviously we're going to talk about Atlanta. What was, uh, what was your initial experience there? Again, was the bar held high? Um, no, the bar was not held high. Um, there were within certain companies, um, you know, but overall, um, no, it was, it's a, um, it's a very large city department and a lot of guys I've talked to across the country, especially in the last, um, several or, or several weeks to a few months. Um, it sounds very similar to a lot of places, a lot of things that you described, um, for your, some of your former departments. Um, there was no bar really. Uh, I remember my first week in recruit school, probably the first couple of days I asked a battalion chief that was giving us a class, 
um, on a break. I said, Hey, uh, you know, what's my, what's my career path? What do I need to do? What classes do I need to take to sit for an FAO position, a driver's position, and then eventually Lieutenant and captain, he kind of gave me a nervous smile. I was like, uh, we're working on that. Well, it's been 15 years and they still have zero requirements for any position other than just time. So, you know, you can be on the job with Atlanta for five years, do absolutely nothing to better yourself, study well, take the test, do well. And next thing you know, boom, you're in charge of a, of a four man engine company uh, with little to no training really, other than what they gave you in recruit school. They don't, um, there was a time and, and there's been an, a, a big ebb and flow with that department since I've been there as far as, you know, what they allow you to take. Are we providing stuff at the time? You know, we went for a long time and we were providing all sorts of different classes and we had aspirations to do certain things like require an, uh, an acting officer in charge program before you sit for the lieutenant's exam. And then all of a sudden the test comes out a few years ago and that's not a requirement. And it just, it's really, it was disappointing is a, um, is a good word. But again, we had really strong companies in certain parts of the city, um, guys that went out and got training and got all their special operations training on their own. Um, you know, they went out and sought out knowledge from other places and other avenues outside of the city of Atlanta just to better themselves. And so, but as a whole, I would say well over half of the department doesn't do that because they don't have to, you know, we all make the same amount of money. So I think the thought process is, well, I can, I can sit here and do absolutely nothing and get paid the same as, you know, Joe Smo down the street that's busting his hump in a busy company trying to learn. And it, it, it's just kind of a kind of a mess. Yeah. So just just to make sure I got this right. So you are now working for your fourth department? Um, one, two. Uh, that's correct. Yeah. Yes, sir. So, so we're on par. Apart from the volunteering that I did for a very, very short time, um, I've had four. So, so not picking on a specific department, but what I have seen in my career, which is only 14 years, but spanned the East and the West Coast, was the departments that set the bar high at the front door, the departments that said, here's, here's where you need to meet. And if you don't, then thank you so much. There's other departments that are hiring were the ones that I saw had great firefighters, great engineers, great lieutenants, captains, you know, battalion chiefs all the way up through. And the ones that didn't, the dog shit went up the pile too, you know, and, and it's not picking on a specific place. I just think that it's a, it's a, a, a fall, a drop to the mentality of, oh, we just need 18 and a heartbeat, bums on seats. Mm-hmm. And, and I, and probably you having moved to different departments have realized having this very unusual perspective of having four departments that it's, it's purely that you, you set the bar high. You will attract people that want to work for you. And if you support them, if you offer training, if you encourage them to improve, if you make them wait longer to promote, you're only going to add so much more value and be desired so much more um, as a department than if you just dig a trench and say, you can actually walk under that and come into our department. Right. And that's kind of what um, I think we did. One of the biggest problems that um, Atlanta has faced and will continue to face until they make some sweeping changes. You know, they've completely lost sight of the mission of the fire department. Um, it's gotten so convoluted with um, just everything under the sun. Um, I had a friend that was on our, we, we several years ago, they put together some different groups, one of which was for recruiting and trying to get guys that were in the field and, and within the department 
to, you know, spitball ideas about how to recruit good people. And um, it was brought up by a friend of mine to go to Fort Benning here in Georgia, down in Columbus, when these guys are getting out of uh, the army. And it's, uh, you know, I think there's a ranger battalion down there or something. But, you know, you get some quality guys coming out of the military. I mean, why, why would you not want to hire that? And that was shot down faster than anything else. But they also make sure that they are at every Atlanta public schools, high school, multiple times a year to hand out applications to do job fairs there. But they won't bring anybody in the military, out of the military, or, or they won't go down and seek those individuals out. If they apply and they get in, great. But they're not going to go down there and throw applications out. And that just blew my mind. I mean, you got some of the best people, um, especially with the fact that we've been at war for almost 20 years. You got some of the best people walking this planet that would be great employees and do really, really good things and, and already have that mindset of, you know, public service and, um, you know, servant leadership and stuff like that. And, and you don't want to go seek these people out. Um, and then we went even went regarding the military and bringing guys in, you know, we went a step crazier than that. And, you know, they, I don't know if they still are or not, but they weren't hiring anybody with tattoos below the short sleeve or above the collar of the shirt, which I have a problem with that one. Yeah, I think that, you know, but guys coming out of the military, that's, that's a culture that, you know, not even necessarily a military culture. That's just a culture in America. Now, a lot of guys and, and women um, are tattooed and have visible tattoos. And if they're not um, offensive, I don't really have a problem with it. You know, what we do is professional. You know, I don't think anybody in the middle of the night is really going to care if you have a sleeve from your elbow down to your wrist and you're working on their husband that's having a heart attack. You know, but they they squashed that. And that, in my opinion, really, you know, nailed the coffin on a lot of guys coming out of the military, which I think is just, again, totally wrong. You know? Yeah. No, and I, I agree 100 percent. So one point I've always made, I my first ever pre-app I put in was the city of I think it was Miami Beach. We'll see. Maybe the city of Miami. And, you know, the app said, have you ever tried these drugs in your past? And by that point, I was like late 20s. So I'm like, well, you know, I'm an honest person. Yes, I tried this back in, you know, eight, eight years ago, 10 years ago. Um, had the time in my life, hugged a lot of people, danced a shitload and, you know, <laughs> never lost a job. Um, right. You know, and I basically, I mean, all but got it ripped up and thrown back in my face. This guy was disgusted. He said, you, you know, you're disqualified. And I'm like, all right, loud and fucking clear. So to be a firefighter, I have to lie through my teeth. And I lied through three polygraphs, you know, following that. And got each job because basically the message you're sending is we want someone who's going to cut dead children out of cars and run into burning buildings and drag, as we will talk about, elderly people out. But we also want you to be a choir boy that's got no tattoos and, you know, no piercings and you know, any of this stuff. And it's like it's such a contradiction of terms. The people that we want to be on the fire ground don't necessarily have tattoos, but if they do, it makes no fucking difference. Right. I could not agree more. And, you know, I think, uh, I don't know, man, it, it, you know, with, with Atlanta, the application process and the recruiting process has always been kind of a mystery that how people, certain people get on, certain people get disqualified. I had several friends that applied over the years that were already firefighters, already paramedics. Um, some had tattoos, some didn't, and their applications would just get lost over and over and over again. And so it always made me scratch my head and wonder, you know, but um, 
yeah, they never really, the bar in Atlanta, unfortunately is really low. And, um, you know, I still have dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of very close friends on the job there. And, and this isn't something that they don't know. And I hate to bring this to light, but it's just, it's part of the, the culture of the department. It's just kind of, you know, they don't want to admit that there's a problem. They think everything that they do is world-class and, and they can't be touched. And it's just like, they just live in this bubble. And it's, and when I say they, you know, the, the executive staff just live in this bubble that everything is fine. There's nothing wrong. Nothing's going to go wrong. Everything we're doing is great. It's wonderful. And it's, they cannot be that insane. They, there's no way that they cannot see what's going on in the field. You know, we went from riding with, um, you know, foreign and engine company as a, as a bare minimum six months ago to riding three on an engine across the city now. And I know, you know, a lot of people that may listen to this would a luxury for three, you know, you know, but with us, that's, that's bare bones and, um, they don't see a problem, you know, and, and you know, our, our, the staffing numbers there now are the lowest they've been since 1977. And they knew it was coming, but they didn't hire. They, did, you know, the facilities are. It's just a. We can go on and on about the, the issues there, but it's just a. It's a mess, and you know, not that we need another Charleston Nine incident, but what I've read about what the city of Charleston did with their fire department um, after that incident, as far as basically getting rid of everybody downtown and bringing in an entire new staff and and just totally starting fresh um, and, and and changing everything. That's what the city of Atlanta fire department needs right now. Um, they, they need entirely new management. They need an entirely new staff from outside of the state, outside of the city to come in with fresh ideas and, and make sweeping changes. That's the only way that place is going to get any better and get out of the hole that they're in currently. Yeah. Yeah, well, then that's the thing that the whole point of of this conversation is not about bad mouthing right. departments, and you know, I, I will put myself out there. So, my last department protects a very famous theme park, and is has the potential of the highest budget of any fire department on the planet, and is by far the most complacent department I've ever had the misfortune of working for. And it sounds like, oh, you sound like a bitter fireman. No, having worked for places like the city of Anaheim. That protects another famous, you know, sister department <laughs> who I would, if I, my son was going to be anywhere, those men and women, I was so fucking proud to work alongside can work on my son any day ever. You know what I mean? And so it's about knowing what's good and wanting the other departments to rise up and be as good as the other ones. It's not about, you know, um, you know, piss and vinegar. It's about bringing solutions and what, killed me about the last one is I was bringing solutions to problems and I was basically having it thrown back in my face saying, we don't have this problem. For example, you're a theme park. You don't even have an MCI plan. That might be a good fucking idea, <laughs> you know? And I would literally get, we don't have that problem, go away, shut up, to the point where in the end, I literally retired so I could actually make a difference from the outside instead and speak freely. And I don't whistleblow and I don't bad mouth specifically and name names, but I want that to be identified because God forbid when it happens, lives are going to be lost. And this is what it's about. You and I signed up knowing that we might lose our life for a complete stranger. And right. all we ask in return is the people we work for create an environment to make the outcome 
as as good as humanly possible when we respond to these people's worst day. Right, right. I couldn't agree more. And, you know, it's just, uh, gosh, it's such a, like a, a, you, you hit the nail on the head. It's just you, with us, um, unless you had unless you had three bugles, which is a, an assistant chief or higher, they really didn't they really didn't care what you had to say. You know, I could I could. As a matter of fact, I did as a firefighter many years ago, um, throw an idea with them uh, to help with some accountability issues we had after a line of duty death. And it got nowhere. Uh, I submitted it to a friend of mine that was a captain who loved the idea, submitted it to a friend of his who was uh, the chief of training at the time. Um, he submitted it up with my name on it. It went nowhere. Uh, a couple months later, he submitted it up with both of our names on it. It went nowhere. Then he submitted it up with his name on it only, and it got some conversation, but then eventually went nowhere. So it's just kind of, you know, it, it's it's very strange, you know, and, and this, this um, current you know, pandemic that we're going through shed light on a bunch of problems they've got um, as far as, you know, being ill-prepared to handle something like this. And we're, we're a major city with the la- world's largest airport that I couldn't tell you how many people are going through every day. And they were writing a plan on how to handle this three weeks after we knew about it, which I'm just kind of like, what in the, what, you know, it just, it's mind boggling to me, you know, and it sounds like you, you've, you've gone through a lot of the same stuff, which, you know, so you, you understand exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah. Well, speaking of that, so one of the most significant instances you had was the bombing, the Olympic bombing. Right. What was the the response to that? Was it a good one? I'm not assuming that it was bad. And if not, were there lessons learned from that? Um, you know, that was way before my time. Um, but my first captain I had on the fire department uh, in Atlanta worked on the fatality at the, at the bombing that night. And things were so different then because of the amount of people that they had downtown. Um, from what I've been told, there were several um, mock, not mock, but they, they added basically several fire stations downtown. They had rigs from outside of the state that came in and, um, you know, uh, they were staffing them up. Everybody was working overtime. So I think, you know, back in, in during the Olympics, you know, they were hiring so much overtime. The staffing was through the roof. They had plenty of stuff. But as far as the response and what happened after, I really couldn't speak on that. I, I just don't know about it. I, I don't know. All I know is what my first captain told me as far as what he did, what he saw that night. And, and that was really it. And then you hear about all the, you know, the cool stuff that happened during the Olympics and, you know, just everything that they got to do and got to see. And, you know, but that's as far as the bombing is concerned, I don't know enough about it. I really don't. Right. Okay. Well, then switching focus to another area that, you know, normally the administration, it's, it's the shoulders that, that a lot of this falls on and, and rightly so in some aspects, but the other side is the funding. So we're taking it a step up now to city council leaders, you know, right. county leaders, and then, you know, even us, the voting public. In uh, 2008, uh, you guys had uh, staffing cuts and lost 190 firefighters. So what were the kind of stories that came out of that? Well, uh, so in, in 08, um, a lot of, a lot of strange things happened that I don't think anybody was prepared for. You know, that was the first recession, uh, of my adult life. Um, I don't know what we're currently in yet, but hopefully not as bad, but yeah, as far as the fire department is concerned, we, we got, we got hammered pretty bad. Um, they closed the busiest firehouse and, and coincidentally the, oldest operating firehouse in the city um, that had been operating continuously since 1905, if I'm not mistaken. 
Um, and uh, they shut our only heavy rescue down that is our also our hazmat team. So we had no real way to mitigate anything like that. Um, and then we were also furloughed during that time. So, um, you know, we do a 24 on 48 off here. Um, a lot of people, a lot of departments have what's called a Kelly day or a Liberty day or what we refer to as a relief day, you know, every 90 days, which Atlanta has always worked since my, in my career there, um, with the exception of 08 and now in 2020, um, we've always worked our, our day and got paid overtime for it. So it's just kind of built in overtime, right? And, um, now they're back to taking their R days again. They're talking about furloughs. Um, in 2008, I think we had a $98 million budget deficit and they are currently sitting at 108 is what I was told a couple weeks ago, uh, projected deficit next year of 80 million and the 22 of $55 million. And I, I don't know if those numbers are accurate, but it's not good. Um, they have no facility currently to train any new recruits in, um, the only recruit school they've, well, they've got a couple classes in right now, but my understanding is they're currently home because there's no place to train them. All the training staff has been put out into the field to bump up the numbers, to cover, um, you know, to help with this pandemic and how we are responding or not responding to it. Um, so they're, they're in a bad pinch right now. Um, I hope, I hope they're able to to come out of it, but it's going to be, it's going to be interesting to see, um, especially from the outside looking in, um, in the next few months, how this, how this is handled, but there's so many things that hang in the balance. Um, you know, it was announced and made, uh, I think as far as the firefighter news worldwide, or at least nationwide, several months ago, they passed a, what they call or referred to as a historic, um, pay raise for us. And that pay raise has a three year staggered, um, implementation. In my opinion, that's that raise is gone. The first big chunk of it was supposed to be July 1st. Now, that's not on the city. Nobody saw this, um, you know, pandemic coming. So I can't blame them for that. It just sucks for the guys and gals that are there because, you know, it was passed. We It wasn't guaranteed. But a lot of people, once it's passed, they, they planned on that, I think. Um, but as far as we, you know, we spoke about council a minute ago. They've got the best most progressive city council uh, group of city council members I've seen in my career there, which is great. The mayor so far has, uh, in my opinion, uh, hasn't done a bad job compared to the one before, but is, is been okay to work for so far. And I think prior to this pandemic, they were headed in the right direction. Um, as far as getting the pay where it needed to be, um, we were set to be the highest paid department in the Metro Atlanta area, which in my opinion, we should be. We're the largest. Um, we've got, Tax money coming in everywhere. You drive through downtown Atlanta and there are tower cranes everywhere. They are building so much. There's so much money coming in. Major, uh, you know, major businesses have their world headquarters here now. Um, Mercedes, Porsche. I mean, it's just, it's, it's crazy the amount of money that's coming in. But they're also, their impact fees haven't been assessed since the early to mid 70s. So these guys are coming in building skyscrapers and are paying nothing nothing in impact fees. I mean, minimal, I mean, minimal amount of money compared to what they should be. And again, that was like, Oh, well, we should look into that. I'm like, yeah, you should. We're losing out on, I mean, millions and millions of dollars. that could be put towards new firehouses, newer equipment, more personnel because of the, you know, the impact on service delivery that's having. And it's just, you know, on the back burner again. So it's kind of a mess. 
Yeah. Well, and that's a very, very important point. Like I said, you know, we, we have to hold every, every level accountable, obviously ourselves as, as step one, but the knee jerk to immediately cut police, fire, schools, you know, all these, these critical members of the infrastructure is horrendous. And I think that, you know, really underlining right now that the doctors, the nurses, the firefighters, the medics, the police officers, the corrections officers, the dispatchers, those are the people that everyone is leaning so heavily into. And those are the same men and women that were furloughed, that were cut, that stations were browned out, that, that, you know, squad cars went from two, two police officers to one police officer. And that shit needs to stop too. Like this whole, fucked up priority system you know maslow's hierarchy is is so skewed in in our world the people that you want to make sure are bolstered the the fire stations are are manned are the the first responders and i i I just blows my mind that they you know not just picking on atlanta our nation the the uk so many places around the world we slice and dice i think that's why the uk is struggling right now i don't think that the virus is just murdering everyone i think that they the nhs was cut and cut and cut to bare bones and those poor men and women that are in the in the nhs are having to do so much with so little so you know i think that you know we as voters we as members of the public need to put pressure on to say we'll we'll deal with our parks grass being a little bit longer you know the roads if they have some potholes that can wait but keep our police and fire and you know all the the emergency services staff so they can at least protect our communities while we weather the storm. Right. And, and that's, you know, that's always been an issue. The fire department, um, at least here, doesn't really generate any kind of income for the city. The police do. They write tickets. You know, when, uh, you know, your neighbor gets her car broken into, God forbid, gets mugged or, you know, held up or carjacked, it's all over the news, you know, and it's sad, but, you know, it's always kind of been the saying here is, you know, we're only as good as our last rescue. And I hate that, but it's kind of, you know, people don't know the fire department's there until they need us. Um, you know, the, the months and, you know, the first year after 9-11 was what it should be all the time. You know, people being thankful and and coming out and bringing stuff to the firehouse to, to eat. And just, you know, we were getting hugs from random people on the street and everybody was donating money and everything was great. But, you know, then... A few years go by and it's like, oh, yeah, we don't need them again until something goes wrong at two o'clock in the morning. You know, so, um, you know, the fire department always seems to get put on the back burner to me, um, which is sad. But it's just, you know, it's a, so it is what it is. How do we work around it? How do we keep our, you know, uh, keep the public educated on what we do um, and how they need to keep us in the front, you know, at the, at the front of everything with, with the police and with, um, you know, all the other critical stuff that, that needs to be there. And it's, it's a hard sell, man. I, you know, and I hate that we, it's sad that we have to sell ourselves to people to get them to pay the firefighters and police officers correctly. It's just, it's, it's a sad state of affairs when you have to do that. But uh, you know, and it's not just, like you said, it's not just Atlanta. I think it's nationally. You know, it, from everybody I've talked to, we're all facing the same problems for the most part. You know, the, the vast majority of public safety across this country is just is never going or never doesn't really get taken care of like they should. Yeah. Well, where I live, it's called Four Ranch. It's a little community in Ocala. And I love it. There's about four, four like subdivisions around this beautiful big lake. And there's a sports area and a clubhouse with a pool and a gym and everything. And we're prone to uh, sinkholes. And when someone gets a sinkhole, 
the entire community chips in to cover the cost of the sinkhole. And I think the problem that we have as a nation is we've got that, fuck that, unless the sinkhole happens to my house, I'm not interested. You know what I mean? Instead of, I would rather there not be a sinkhole by my house. So, neighbor, while you're, you know, mitigating that disaster close to yours, I will gladly chip in. I don't want to use the fire department. That means my house is never burnt down. That means my kid has never choked on a piece of steak. That means my teenage door has never been stuck in, a, you know, an entrapment. That's a good thing, you know. So, that the mindset that, you know, was, I mean, Bruno Cini, I think, did some great things. But this customer service thing, I think, got pushed too far. Like, when we're not working, we should be training, not installing smoke alarms and testing fire hydrants. I'm sorry, but that's not making us better at our job. What's making I, I us better could, at our job is training. I so, couldn't agree more. Could not agree more. So, well, you, speaking of training, so so go back to Atlanta because I want to work up, obviously, towards the rescue. What what was your training like, and what what about the realism of the training that they put you through? Um. So when I back up to recruit school, when I was hired, um. They were doing what was referred to at the time as a fast track program. So we did a four week recruit school, very intense. Um, you know, everybody that was hired, at least in my class and the class prior to mine, um, you had to have, I think, two or three years uh, prior experience. Um, we utilize MPQ uh, here in Georgia. So you had to have MPQ firefighter one and two and be at least an EMT or paramedic. Um, and you had to have, uh, like I said, two years of comparable size department. So there was just a few departments in Metro Atlanta that really people should have been able to apply from. Um, the the recruit school was phenomenal. Uh, we had uh, some really, really good lieutenants that were assigned to training at that time. Um, we also had adjunct instructors that came out uh, that were assigned to field operations that came out and helped uh, on their, you know, they brought the rigs down when they were on duty. They came on their off days and it was a blast. I had, I learned so much, um, about myself and about the fire department. Um, you know, they do, we do stuff in Atlanta that nobody else, uh, at least in our area really does. Um, so I learned a lot of just, you know, different hose deployment techniques. Um, we did a lot of reversing out, you know, and, and I don't mean, um, dropping a five inch at an engine and going to a plug. We dropped a skid load, at the house with a um, water thief, which I had never even seen other than in the books. I've just seen a gated Y. So, you know, we dropped a thief and two inches, three quarters, and the engine took off and drove the hydrant. You know, we did that. That was our bread and butter, you know, so that was totally new to me. I'd never had experienced that before. So recruit school was great. I learned a lot. Um, and then, like I said, there wasn't a whole lot of training that was done. Um, I shouldn't say that. Let me back up. The rest of the stuff from that point forward was self-initiated. So we did do a lot of classes in-house. Um, we One of the things we bought um, back in 2009, I think, or 2010, we bought a flashover simulator from Draeger. It was a blast. Um, I was in one of the initial train-the-trainer classes with the guys from Draeger, and that was so much fun to teach um, and, and probably in my career the best prop or, tra- or training yeah best training prop that i've ever i've ever had the pleasure of working with it's just it's one of the most um real simulators you can ever ever work with um so we did a lot of special operations training in-house we did um <clears throat> well we did uh mpq ropes 
if you had to go to confined space, there was a there's a department here in Metro Atlanta that really has the, a better simulator. Um, another department here in Metro Atlanta has a really good trench program, so we were able to do that. And then if you want to go on to structural collapse, <clears throat> uh, the State Fire Academy has a great program. So, you know, but again, this is all stuff that you had to be self-initiated, you know, self-driven, and you had to initiate on your own to go get this training. Um, but, you know, one of the other things that we did a lot, uh, we do not currently have an operating burn building, but we had a class one concrete building when I was there. Um, it was taken out of service. Actually, I might have been the last class to burn in it. We had a, uh, a Connex burn building for a number of years that is now out of service. But a lot of guys from the field would go down and make comp time or overtime and teach recruits. And I did that a lot. I loved teaching new firefighters how to be firemen. Um, and, you know, that was that was a really big passion of mine. Um, we also did a, some decent, um, a decent AOIC program, an acting officer in charge program I was involved with. I was involved with Fire Officer One for a while. Uh, they were mandating that everybody goes through that um, training. And then everything else I kind of went and got on my own. Um, we did an in-house paramedic program that I, uh, that's how I got my paramedic license, <coughs> excuse me, about 10 years ago. And, um, but yeah, again, nothing was required. It was just some stuff was there if you wanted to go take it. And if you wanted to step outside of the department and go to the state or go to, you know, uh, training at the National Fire Academy or, you know, a lot of the guys that were involved in special operations with the city got to go to Paratech University. They got to go to rigging classes with cranes. And, you know, there was all there was different stuff, but it was it was really, uh, you know, the average firefighter on, a, on an engine company never heard about a lot of the special operations stuff because it stayed within that group in the city. So uh, they had to train their guys up on it first. And then if there was extra room for uh you know, a regular fireman that was trying to get into special ops, then, you know, they'd slide them in. Right. Yeah. Then that's, that's a, a interesting thing for me in the fire services. And again, the, kudos to all the men and women out there that do this. You know, we want to get better. So we take vacation days, days that we would have gone and spent the day with our family, maybe gone on a road trip, you know, whatever. And instead we go to a fire academy and we learn VMR, we learn ropes, we learn trench. And the irony is, you're not going to then go and use that to to earn money somewhere else. And I always joke, like, you're not going to stand there with a hearse tool on, on the freeway hoping someone's going to wreck and then charge them 100 bucks to cut them out. You know, right. so I don't know of, of any other professions that once you get in, to get better at your job, you have to take vacation days and spend your own money to do it. But the fire service does. And I think that's something that we've really dropped the ball. You want a degree in you know, fire science or a fire-related degree, then you have to do all the admin stuff. And I don't understand why we don't do special operations and, you know, maybe interweave EMS so that to get a degree in fire science, you have, you know, your rope ops, you have your, your VMR, you have trench, you have confined space. And so you just become a better firefighter. But I can't imagine being in the military and saying, hey, I want to learn how to shoot better. Well, you're going to have to take a day off and go to gun school. Right. <laughs> right. That, that makes no, it makes no sense, you know. Um, thankfully we had, um, what was called special assignment. So they would just basically allow you off. Um, but again, because of staffing difficulties and staffing challenges we've had for the last, about the last year, pretty much all special assignment was canceled. Um, they did not, which FDIC didn't happen this year, but they, they canceled FDIC. 
Um, they canceled a lot of the classes that, you know, or a lot of stuff that people had special assignment for. Um, I was fortunate enough to um, attend uh, the High Rise Operation Conference in Pensacola this year with um, Kurt Isaacson and his guys. And um, because I paid for the class out of pocket, they were kind enough to give me the time off for free without making me, you know, making me use my own leave. But I was just like, guys, I'm not, listen, just give me the time off. I'm not asking for reimbursement. I paid out of pocket for this. But again, why, you know, why they're not allowed. But again, most of, most of our stuff lately has purely been because of staffing issues. You know, most of, most of the time they would allow you to go. But again, they never required anything. There was never anything saying, you know, within your first three years as a firefighter, you have to have the following five classes, you know, a basic vehicle extrication, um, maybe a couple of units of fire control or the flashover thing. They just, it's not, nothing was required. And it's just, it's mind blowing that a department that big can not have something like that in place. The department that I started in uh, 20 some odd years ago, um, they had that when I started, it was already in the, in the, you know, already part of it, you know? So thankfully, when I first started, I was trying to hustle and get as much training as I could. And I, and I loved all of it. I could not get enough of going to classes. So I was at the state fire academy and I was single. I didn't have a wife and kids, but I was down there, you know, at least once or twice a month taking different classes and, and just trying to learn and soak up as much as I could. Um, and then the thought process at the time too was when I am eligible for Lieutenant, I'll have all this stuff. So if I'm, if I am married later, you know, I don't have to go back down and take time away from my family to get, all of this stuff. So I kind of got it all in the very beginning, you know, but, um, yeah, it's just, it's a weird, uh, <laughs> it's just, you, you, you hit the nail on the head though, as far as having to take your own time. That's just, that's just mind boggling to me. Yeah. And I think it just, it creates an environment where people like you are going to go regardless. You know, I think there's the same with the fitness, you know, I think the shifts are horrendous for like the 56 hour work week. I think 24s are absolutely essential in the fire service but a 2472 should be an industry standard as as you probably know having heard some of the other podcasts oh yeah but you know you so that's the the um employer responsibility but then there's obviously an ownership as well and there are men and women that are incredibly fit despite the shifts and there are men and women that succumb to the opposite that are they're very deconditioned and i think that when you leave it to the initiative of the firefighter then you're going to have some that roll up on scene when your kid's bleeding to death that you're like, thank God you showed up and you you knew how to clamshell and you got my kid out. Thank you. And there's some that the last time I touched a tool was the academy and your kid bleeds to death, you know, and that's unacceptable. You're absolutely right. And, and the the thing is, is, and I'm sure you've experienced this with different, you know, the departments you've been with, but you've got those core guys and, and ladies that, that, are so up on their game and, and I'm going to, I'll be the first one to tell you, am I, am I the best at this? Absolutely not. You know, there are, there are people out there that are so much more um, squared away than I am, but then you've also got people that sign the application. They go through recruit school. They barely make it. They go to a slow company, they go hide and they do absolutely nothing during their career. They don't train. They don't do shit. And that's okay. It's not, it's not an issue. It's just like, Hey, you know, he, you know, we have a, a, a kind of a saying, I guess, with the guys I, I ran with a lot. It's like, you know, the guys that don't do shit, never get in trouble. The guys that go out on a limb and bust their butt and do something that maybe, you know, uh, with my, my 
incident. You know, if I'd have done nothing, we wouldn't be having this this podcast right now. Nothing would have ever happened. I, I if I had done absolutely nothing on that call and just kind of held out and waited for you know some more people to get there or for somebody to tell me what to do um, or come up and force me to do something, that's okay. Those guys never got in trouble. They were just like, oh well, you know. And they never said this specifically, but it kind of looked to me like, oh, well, this guy's an idiot. You know, he, he doesn't know any better. You know better. We expect more from you. And, th- and that was, you know, the you know better, we expect more from you was a conversation I'd had with several chief officers over the years. I'm like, wait, wait, why are you yelling at me when this happened over here? You know, why am I getting chastised for it? And this guy didn't do anything. Well, he doesn't know any better. I'm like, what? Whose fault is that? You know, we've got companies of those guys. And again, this isn't just an Atlanta thing. This is a national problem, you know, but I'm just speaking from my experience with them, you know. Yeah, and I think that's definitely, you know, a side effect of um poor hiring practices. You know, and going and going back to uh, you know, to what we talked about earlier, I want to hit this subject because this needs to be talked about. The word diversity kind of lurks in the shadows. It's like a dirty word. Big you, elephant in the room, James. Yeah, exactly. But but it's such an insult to the good firefighters out there that happen to fall in whatever minority category you want to slide, you know, black, gay, female, whatever, you know, you, you, you deem as a minority. Diversity is going to areas where you think maybe haven't been reached out to in, in an intelligent way and creating an environment to bring those men and women in. Here in Ocala, one of my friends, Chris Hickman, runs a, a mentor program for firefighters. An incredible program is completely free and we have, you know, people from all backgrounds and walks of life coming in there and those fucking people are molded into incredible firefighter candidates. My friend Rick Segrist, who's behind the fire sled, um, he talked about why aren't we, why aren't recruiters going to, you know, volleyball teams, CrossFit gyms and seeking out these incredible female athletes that they have there. So diversity isn't just saying, oh, you need to have this pigmentation. No, that's an insult to every black, Hispanic, Asian, female, you know, homosexual, Muslim, whatever you want to fucking deem right. as is being oppressed. That's an insult to everyone that's actually working now. That's a damn good firefighter and has earned their way there because they are the better candidate than anyone else that they stood next to. So you want to, you want to increase diversity. Go and actually intelligently infiltrate areas that you want to bring people in. And create an environment for them to thrive. And the shitty English firefighter with the pasty skin and the fucked up teeth, he doesn't deserve to to work on your department. You know, he has to earn his spot the same way as everyone else. But diversity isn't about filling some shopping list of racists. That's the biggest insult to any profession. But if you have a department that's got a history of maybe a good old boy system where you haven't included other areas, then you absolutely need to fix that. And go and create mentor programs and things like that because you are missing such an incredible pool of men and women that will be an absolute asset to your department. You know, I agree. Um, and, and, you know, obviously growing up in this job and, and everywhere across the country is different. You know, uh, take New York, for example. You know, there's been a huge push for them to de- to become more diverse because their numbers are, are staggeringly, um, you know, mostly white males. Um, and you know, in Atlanta, um, the last numbers I saw were, I want to say 65% African-American and 
Um, I don't know. I, I couldn't begin to tell you the numbers of Hispanics or Asian, but you know, overwhelming majority of firefighters in Atlanta are black males and that's fine. I have no problem with that. But the reason the recruiting, in my opinion, they, they don't, they don't seek out the best. They don't, they, they're not going to take, if you score a hundred on the exam, James, and another, uh, another uh, kid from inside, uh, inside Atlanta doesn't and scores a 50, but he lived in the city and went through APS schools, Atlanta public schools, chances are that that kid's going to get the call before you do because they don't they will never hire the best they will always hire what makeup they want to the department to look like and, and that's a disgusting fact about that place that I hate um I, I've just it's it blew my mind within the first six eight weeks I was employed there I was like I, I never realized there was such an issue with you know race racial stuff in the fire service. Um, it just, it just blew my mind, you know, but you hit the nail on the head. It's, you know, diversity is not, it's not about the colors necessarily, but you know, it's just, a, it's a, I think it's a huge problem again, nationally. Um, you know, just go for the best candidate. That's all I want you to do. I don't care what they look like. I don't care if they like guys, they like girls. None of that matters to me. I want to know that whoever is beside me, is going to be beside me at two o'clock in the morning, pushing down a hallway. I could care less what you look like. I don't give a damn. Um, you know, but unfortunately that's just, everybody's pushing because of, you know, um, I don't know what the root of it all is, but that's just, you know, the diversity and inclusivity has always is, has been a hot button and, and big words used here lately or the buzzwords used, um, in the fire service lately. And I, and I, I can't for the life of me wrap my head around it, but you know, it's been going on longer than um, you and I have both been involved. I remember my mom discussing uh, city of San Francisco lowered their standards to bring in females back in the God, the mid eighties. And she was blown away by it. Um, and she's like, that's just wrong. You know, she's like, they, you know, they, they need to hire the best candidate. They don't need to lower the physical standards or the written test standards to bring in any group of people, black, white, male, female, they need to take the best candidates and, and push them through. Um, but unfortunately, in some departments and in some circles, that may not fit the image that they want to portray. Yeah. And I think it's it's extreme. So I'm seeing the same exact extremes right now with this isolation. I, there's, two, there's two kind of conversations going on. Either A, you, if you're not sheltering at home, wearing a mask, sitting in a bathtub of hand sanitizer, you're a fucking murderer and you're going to kill everyone else on planet Earth. And then there's the other side where this is a government conspiracy. This is just to keep the people down. And there's no discussion in the middle. And it's the same with this. You know, the middle is you find the best candidates and you cannot, you cannot pull from, from areas that you haven't infiltrated. So if you're not mentoring, if you're not reaching out to communities, um, you know, that happen to be poorer, you know, whatever it is, then A, you're missing out on a pool. And yeah, that is a disservice to the community. It's supposed to be the city of whatever, the county of whatever. So that middle ground is where it's at. Take people and, and you know, they may be of different pigmentation, whatever it is, but they also are going to be the best candidates. And the biggest striking irony is to me, when you and I go to a structure fire and it's smoked out and we're wearing our gear and we're breathing the same fucking tank, you have no idea who the hell it is. I barely recognized my partner half the time when I was in a fire. And so it shows you the ridiculousness of 
you know, the outward appearance. But what you can tell, sure as shit on a fire ground, is who's the good firefighter and who's the chicken with their fucking head cut off. That's the only distinction that needs to be made in the fire service is a good firefighter and a shitty firefighter, period. I, I couldn't agree with you more. And a guy that I work with uh, in Atlanta told me years ago, black guy, he's like, man, we all look the same with our turnout gear on. At two in the morning, it doesn't. It does not matter. We're all firemen at two in the morning. Black, white, male, female, Asian, Hispanic, does not matter. Be good at your job, you know, um, and and train and and you know, I'm preaching to the choir. You know exactly what I mean. And, and that's the, and that's the frustrating thing with me is just the hiring practices. Um, I, I, again, I think this is a national issue. I don't think this is just Atlanta or or where you worked. It's just a that's where society is pointing us right now and uh, you know and it's a shame and to take your your thing with the with the whole um shelter in place and and the covid stuff i don't even know who to believe anymore <laughs> i mean you literally can dive down any rabbit hole you want to on the internet if you want to believe that sheltering in place and not seeing anybody and wearing masks and gloves when you go to the store even though you've never been properly trained on how to put gloves on, remove gloves or wear a mask and what, you know, you can dive down that rabbit hole. If you believe that this is all a hoax and, you know, was, was started by a weapons lab in Wuhan, China, then you can dive down that rabbit hole. I literally at this point, I have no idea who to believe anymore. I am just taking this from a very common sense approach and 20 plus years in the fire service and 10 years as a paramedic and a whole lot of calls from my belt dealing with different stuff from Ebola to now this, and I'm just making it work for my family and what's best for us. Now, that being said, with this specific thing, Atlanta and, well, excuse me, Georgia specifically has some lower numbers. Where I live um, outside of Atlanta has really low numbers. We are not New Orleans. We are not New York City. We are not, you know, some of these really hard hit areas. So what works for them and what may need to work for my friends and family that live in Louisiana um, doesn't necessarily apply to us. But that doesn't mean that what I'm doing is putting my family or the citizens in the community that I live in and work in at risk because I'm not wearing a mask when I go to the grocery store. And you drive on your own car, on your own. (laughs) I saw something the other day online. It's like if you're driving around by yourself in your car and you have a mask on, don't come out of the house. Even when this is over, do not set foot back in society again. It's just like people – but again – it's a lack of education. Exactly. You know, but 90% of the normal general population, unless they're in the medical field or the public safety, they don't know how to properly take gloves off. You know, these people, I was watching the other day, some Uber Eats drivers, or excuse me, I probably shouldn't have called them by name. <laughs> you know, these, uh, the, the um, pickup food people, whatever you call them, um, you know, they were fist bumping each other in a restaurant with gloves on. You know, and then they're going and, and hitting the pen, the the credit card stuff, and signing things with pens on, and then going and getting their car, and they're delivering food. So I'm like, they're not even. They think they're doing the right thing, and God bless them for it. But they're not doing anything to make this better. You know, so it's just a a total. I don't know where to go with this whole thing. You know, we took it. Um, I personally took it much more lightly than I probably should have for the first few weeks because. I did think this was sort of similar to the common cold or the the flu rather. And then I was, I changed my mind on the whole thing. And so we kind of tightened it down a little bit, but then when the numbers were coming in here locally, you know, we relaxed things a little bit, but 
I've got family in Louisiana that are doing exactly the opposite because where they live, it's bad. I mean, they're, um, my, my, some of my family members, they're very close friends have, have family members that have been on ventilators for almost two months. I think today's like day 52. You know, this is, this is hit that population, uh, hit Louisiana really, really hard. Um, I've got friends in New York. I haven't really spoke to them lately about this. Um, but it's, it's bad, but it's, it's worse in certain areas. So, you know, you got to make it work for you and your family and to take care of you and your family. My dad, um, retired last year and moved, um, about 10 minutes away from California and he's had two heart attacks. I haven't say I haven't been around him at all. I've done his grocery shopping for him. I went and cut his hair for him a couple weeks ago. Um, and we've had very limited contact. My, my wife's, uh, grandmother, has COPD. She can't walk 10 feet without getting winded if she's not on her oxygen. I haven't seen her. You know, we haven't been around her. We've made very limited contact, you know, so we're trying to protect those that are in our, in our family that are, you know, most at risk. But, you know, thankfully, uh, when this whole thing started, I was out of work getting some, uh, getting an elbow fixed and I was not running calls uh, in downtown Atlanta when this whole thing jumped off. And I'm very, very thankful for it because I know the exposure rate down there is significantly greater. And I wouldn't have felt comfortable coming home to a two-year-old, a wife and a family with significant medical history on both sides of our family with people that live close to us. So I'm very thankful that, um, that I was not in the thick of this when this whole pandemic started. And it seems like it's winding down. I hope I'm not putting my foot in my mouth, but hopefully we're getting better, at least here uh, in the very near future. So maybe things will lighten up a little bit. Well, thanks a lot, Danny Dwyer. And you're going to have a whole host of murder hornets showing up at your house. (laughs) (laughs) It just, 2020 has been a dumpster fire (laughs) so far. So, But it's it's the middle ground again. What you've talked about is, you know, sensible isolation, but nothing you've said is told me that you're fucking terrified of this thing and it's the same i'm going to say one more thing about diversity then we're going to move on but it's the same with diversity you can't just hire people on pigmentation but you can't ignore that many departments were racist as fuck and deliberately didn't hire people of different colors the middle ground is where we need to go mentor people that you ignored before but also bring on people based on their skills it's that fucking simple very simple i couldn't agree more Right. Well, then I want to move on to obviously, um, June 28th. But before we do, just to set the scene, um, now obviously it's retroactively, but tell me about Sally Screen and, and, you know, how she was viewed in the community. Man, um, I wish I could have known her. I'll say that she, um, ironically, um, a very good friend of mine was a captain that served at her fire station that was should have been uh, the first two engine uh, to her fire and knew her. He was assigned as a captain there for, I think, eight years. So he knew Sally very well. Um, from what I've been told, uh, you know, she was very involved in her church, which was about a half a block away. It was just it was almost completely catty corner to her home. Um, she ran a food pantry for a lot of um uh, homeless people and, and people that were just in financial troubles. So she ran, from what I I believe I was told, she kind of ran like a little food pantry out of her house. Um, but she was a 94 year old grandmother, uh, native of Atlanta to my knowledge and just seemed like a, a really neat woman. Um, and again, I wish I could have known her. I, I read a, a quote, um, 
from one of her neighbors, a longtime friend that had known her. And, and when the local media reached out to them about the incident and, and my suspension, uh, this gentleman said, well, if, if Sally would have known Danny, she would have done the same thing. And that, and that was just neat. And, and again, um, this one, it, it put a face with the victim, you know, they, and they all, and they're all somebody's child and, and a sister or an aunt or a, a wife, mother, grandmother, grandfather, they all are somebody to, to someone. Um, but this one, um, just because of who she was and her age and her status within the community of Adamsville, um, was just different, you know, and, and it, and Matt, I think, um, I, I happened to catch the news. Um, and, and I don't know that I've watched, still haven't watched the local news, uh, since the 28th, but I caught her story, you know, I caught the fire and, and they put one of her photos up, the one that was cir circulated around the media. And I was like, wow, that, you know, that wasn't just a, a person in a vacant house or, or, a, you know, and again, they're all somebody, but this one, you know, uh, Miss Sally, uh, looked like just one of the neatest, uh, ladies you could have met, you know, she was 94 years old. And, and one of the things that I loved running calls downtown is you would run into these elderly people that had lived in, um, their neighborhoods or respective neighborhoods for 50, 60 years. And a lot of these neighborhoods in Atlanta have changed so much in 50 years. I always, you know, in the, in the downtime or while the guys were taking vitals on, on their family member, I would, you know, talk to make small talk with the you know, husband or wife or whatever, just kind of get an idea of what it was like to grow up in Atlanta in that house in, in 1958 or, or, you know, something like that. And it was, it, they were just such nice people to talk to, you know, so uh, I, I don't know enough about Miss Sally other than what I've learned through the media. Um, there have been a few attempts by local reporters to connect uh, her fa or family members to get them to make a statement or to talk to me directly and they were not in a position um, mentally, I guess, where they could do that yet. So unfortunately I don't know a lot about her other than I would have liked to have met her, you know? Yeah. All right. So, so I want to set the scene. So she here's a, um, yeah, a young lady who was African-American was born in the 1920s in the South, you know, served her community, obviously spent a lifetime being sounds like a, an incredible woman, very altruistic and compassionate. And now, you know, through whatever transpired, she's in a home and, uh, you know, a fire breaks out. So tell me about, you know, when the call gets toned out, what rig you were on, the staffing level on that rig, and then kind of walk me through the fire. Okay. So, uh, initially the, as I spoke about just a second ago, her, there's a single engine company, um, about a mile away that would have been first due to her, house uh that night the next uh second due engine company and first due truck company all three of those pieces of equipment were tied up on an incident actually out in front of uh the fire station that served her house or served you know us uh her local fire station now just, just just to interrupt what what was the incident they were on so uh a guy was flying down the high the road that the fire station sits on it's a four lane um heavily traveled road uh this was just before one o'clock in the morning and he knocked down a uh, power pole with high tension power lines. Power pole falls across uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Drive. Uh, power lines fall down across the front ramp of Station 9, wipe out their generator, all their power, 
and uh, again, they've got live arcing power lines down in front of the firehouse. Okay, so so a legitimate reason why those rigs were out of service at that point, right? And there and there's been a lot of talk about that, and you know why didn't they? You know, okay, so the power is out. Why didn't they open the door? They had they had live wires down across the front ramp, and you can say what you want to. I don't. I'm I'm glad I wasn't there. I'm glad I didn't hear that part of it go out because I would have felt helpless as could be. Um, so they called because of the incident. Um, and it was again, across four lanes of a very heavily traveled road, even at at one o'clock in the morning, they called for company 38 to come assist with traffic control. So you had an engine and a ladder truck on either, on either side of the incident. And in the mix of all this, another car drives through the middle of all this. So now they've got a guy that's got high tension power lines wrapped up around his tire. You've got the initial wreck. So they had their hands full. They call for help. Help arrives. And within a few minutes of that incident, um, the fire call comes in for her house on Collier Drive. Um, I was assigned that night. Uh, I was a lieutenant at Station 16, which is in uh, Vine, the Vine City neighborhood in Atlanta, northwest Atlanta. And this is, if you look at the city on a pie slice uh, or on a clock, the, uh, her house is basically at 9 o'clock and I'm at 10 o'clock somewhere, right? So we didn't, even the, the ladder truck uh, I was covering that night, my captain was off uh, with the double companies in Atlanta. Lieutenant rides the engine, uh, captain rides a truck. Uh, so we had a 103-foot uh, tractor-drawn aerial tiller truck, so myself and two drivers. Um, they banged the fire out, uh, and the initial response, uh, we have the automated uh, WestNet system. So it's the, the, the lady's like, almost like a robotic voice, and it said box 09 which is odd for us because we don't run down there uh, very often. So, um, you know, jump in my pants, coat, whole nine yards, get in the rig and um, open up the computer. I'm like, this is really weird because the first, all, all of the engines and trucks that were responding don't normally run together, especially to this area. So something was up. And I looked at the computer and noticed that company 38 and engine nine were tied up on the same incident. I'm like, okay, well that explains why, this assignment so screwed up. So um, engine 22 um, was the first arriving engine company. And I don't recall the mileage that they traveled to get down there, but it's a hell of a ride. Um, you know, we shoot for very quick response times in Atlanta. We've got about three and a half to four square miles of territory per engine company. So we've got really quick response times, um, which benefit us uh, immensely. And because these two were out, they, they, they were in for quite a ride. And I think they arrived somewhere in the neighborhood just, just under eight minutes, which is an eternity for us uh, downtown. Uh, first engine arrives. The captain uh, goes on scene, gives his brief initial report, uh, declares a working fire. Um, says he's getting lines on the ground and he's out doing a 360, which is our, our walk around of the building, which is required by our, our policy. So uh, he gets out, does his walk around. Um, they've got fire blowing out the Bravo Charlie corner on a one story, what we call a one story frame, a wood frame house, four sided brick. Uh, there's a basement on the Delta side. So the right side of the house, so it's over a one car garage. So fire blowing out the, uh, left rear corner. And when he comes back and gives his update, he does confirm that we, or does announce that we have a confirmed entrapment. I, and I don't believe that anything prior to that, we didn't have an indication of an entrapment. Um, 
sometimes we get really good remarks on the computers on the way there, and sometimes we don't. I, I think this one just said house fire. I don't remember seeing anything about an entrapment, um, but I do remember vividly being probably about a minute out, minute and a half out, and him saying an entrapment. And, I, and I, for whatever reason, I reiterated it to the guys in the rig. I said, hey, guys, we got a, we got a confirmed entrapment. And I remember taking my headphones off and buttoning my gear up a little bit tighter than I normally do. Um, I don't know why I did. I just, I just remember I, I always bad habit, but I left my collar flap undone uh, pretty much 90% of the time. Um, and I remember doing my collar flap up a little bit tighter and you know, whatever. So the, uh, as the equipment starts arriving in typical Atlanta, even though we're, we're way out of pocket, everybody's coming from way out of pocket everybody is still arriving pretty much on top of each other. So we had six pieces of equipment there pretty quick um, on, on a one story residential or a two story residential in Atlanta, you get three engines, three ladder trucks, two battalion chiefs. Uh, one it's, if you have a confirmed entrapment, uh, multiple structures on fire or anything over two stories, you get our heavy rescue, our squad four. Um, so they weren't on the initial dispatch, but when the entrapment came out, they were, they were headed our way. Um, and then once it's confirmed, you get an air unit utilities and things like that. So as I said, when the second engine arrived, uh, the first two officer had them reverse out. And so they dropped their five inch at engine 22 and they laid out about 500 feet of five inch to a hydrant. Again, not normal for us. We're, we're, you know, uh, we've got hydrants every 200 to 250 feet. So where we were, there was an elementary school across the street. And so the hydrants had a pretty big gap because the face of the school was right there. And I think that would make sense to me as to why there wasn't um, a hydrant right across the street or, or in her front yard. So second engine lays out. Uh, third due engine arrives on scene and they were assigned, assigned as the initial RIT engine, a rapid intervention team. So uh, what they are supposed to do per policy is to stretch a second uh, hand line to the closest point of entry to the initial attack team, maintain a charged hand line and kind of track the interior crews in case there isn't a, a snafu with those guys that they can go in and get them out. Um, first truck arrives on scene about 30 seconds before we do. Um, and normally our normal policy is the first due truck either has primary search or top side vent, whichever the situation dictates or warrants, uh, whichever one is more needed. Obviously this one with a confirmed entrapment, they should have been given um, primary search initially. Uh, we arrived on scene shortly after truck 25. Um, I gave on scene on the radio and the first dude captain was like, Danny, come up and give me a hand or truck 16, come up and give me a hand, something like that. It was, it was not a normal, concise, clear order that this captain is usually known for giving. Um, and he obviously had his hands full. Uh, at that point. So uh, when we arrived, I told both my drivers that guys, I'm going to go see what David needs. When you get your shit together and get it on, meet me on the A side of the house, which is how most, in my opinion, most aggressive truck companies in the city run. We don't have a fourth, uh, fourth person. 90% of the time it's myself and or uh, two drivers and a boss. So um, that's how we always operated. I would go get a, get us an assignment. And generally speaking, they were right on my heels, you know, within about a minute or whatever, they got their stuff on and came and met me and we went to work. Um, so, uh, I got off the rig and the, the driver of the first due engine was at the door 
um, at my door when I got off the rig. And he's a very good friend of mine. Um, I've watched the guy grow up in Atlanta as a, as a firefighter and just a good kid. And, um, he's like, Hey man, we got to confirm entrapment. And I was like, I know I got you. You know, I, I just, I remember him coming up and telling me that. And I don't know why I do remember him walking around again, one o'clock in the morning, you know, they got their hands full. I just remember him being kind of spaced out and, and a, kind of a nervous look on his face. So I was like, okay, cool. You know, we, I get out, uh, slung my air pack on, uh, grabbed a set of irons, my tick, um, helmet and went to work. So, uh, we had the truck parked, um, right out in front of the house, basically right behind the first two engine, uh, who had pulled just a little bit past. So for us, that is, it's a great spot. You, we, we shoot to have the truck right out front. So it wasn't very far for me to walk, maybe 50, 60 feet, um, Got up into the front yard, uh, stepped over some inch and three quarter that was already stretched and made my way up to the front porch. And I remember um, I was following the first due truck up the front porch. Now, the first due battalion chief arrived shortly after we did. I don't believe at the time he'd assumed command yet. But as the first engine, engine captain and I are having a face to face, uh, he assigns us primary search, assigns truck 16 primary search. Um, via the radio. I acknowledged his order. And at the same time, uh, David and I are having a face to face and he's like, Danny, I need to search right now. And I was like, okay, man, you know, no worries. I got you. Uh, the first due truck captain, uh, was on the irons. We had burglar bars all the way around, um, all the way around the house, windows, doors, everything. Um, he makes quick work of that pops a burglar door. Um, takes out the, the wood uh, interior door, exterior door to the inside of the house. And I remember him going, you guys ready? And we have a line charge that was bled off. So he pops the front door and in go the firefighter and captain from engine 22. Um, we had a lot of, uh, not debris, but obstacles in the front yard, a lot of bushes, a front porch, some, ra- some wrought iron railings. Um, there may have been some chairs on the front porch. I don't recall, but I know the, I had to give them a couple feeds of, of hose to get them in the door without having any, uh, snags. So gave them a couple, uh, I gave them a couple, uh, feeds of hose and in the process got my stuff on and, uh, my, my face piece, hood and helmet, everything, um, hooked up and stepped in right behind them. And when they made entry, uh, that we went in through the alpha side through the front door and they went straight into a hallway. So there was a bedroom immediately to the right. Um, and then once they got out of the hallway, there's a combination of bedrooms and, and bathrooms. Um, we entered into a living room and let me back up real quick. When they popped the front door, the first thing I remember noticing that caught my eyes, we had really good lift on the smoke conditions. And so if you recall, James, I'm sure being on a, on a, you know, bedroom or kitchen fire on the back uh, corner of a house, what kind of smoke you have pushing out the front. It's nothing crazy, uh, moderate turbulence, nothing, you know, this did not indicate at all any sign of an, of an impending flashover or any kind of uh, hostile fire event. And, uh, you know, so we pushed in the door, um, you know, the, the smoke lifted uh, and on me, I'm six, four. And I, and I want to say we were probably chest to shoulders high. So we had really good air. I remember thinking that I was like, man, out of, out of the rescues I've been involved with, this one had some of the best conditions for survivability. Um, if somebody's laying on the floor or even in their bed, 
So we push into the living room. Uh, the engine company goes straight and is, you know, protecting egress to the front door, protecting the rescue. And, and I'm also assuming, but knowing this captain very well, um, they were searching as they made their way down the hall. And uh, so I went left. Uh, I, when I kneeled down, I took a quick peek with my thermal imager, uh, tried to see if I could see anything. And again, I could see the floor. I remember what the rug looked like. I remember what the furniture looked like, the chairs. <clears throat> Excuse me. So we had, I say all that because we had really good visibility and everything was still intact. It hadn't flashed yet. Um, you know, we had good smoke and fire pushing out the rear corner. So everything you want for good conditions. Um, when I picked up the camera and looked towards the Bravo side of the house, we had um, some fire blowing around a cased opening coming from the rear of the home towards the front door. Uh, I remember crawling over and I was like, you know, what we are taught in Atlanta, and I think everybody is of the same mindset when you're a truck and you're searching, you go to the seat of the fire and search your way back. So that was my intent. Um, I crawled towards the Bravo side of the house, which ended up being a dining room, crawled into the dining room. Now the cased opening was separating the dining room from the living room. And, uh, I looked towards the seaside. I poked my head around the corner, looked towards the Charlie side of the house and the whole back of the house is burning up. And just as soon as I went to try and sweep the dining room, I looked down and the victim is at my knees. Her head's pretty much almost in my lap. Um, at that point, uh, you know, again, you crawl in and you, and you search and you always expect to find people. That's I, I try and make that a point to that way. I don't I don't know. That's just always been something I'm like, expect to find people. So when you don't, that's a good day. And but, I, you know, every time you do, it still surprises the shit out of you. So I was like, oh, my God. And I, I remember trying to get out on the radio and I was unable to get out due to some other radio traffic. So I was like, well, fuck it. I'm pulling. And I pulled her. Mind you, at this point, uh, this is a 12, 1300 square foot house. So I'm, I'm 12, maybe 15 feet from the front door, straight line, line of sight. There's nothing, you know, that's it. I pulled her um, out of the dining room, into the living room, probably three or four feet. And everything uh, changed in an instant. We had, uh, we went from great visibility to zero visibility, uh, heavy heat um, heavy fire conditions. It, it, it was, it was like watching in slow motion. And what we talked about earlier about the flashover simulator, this is everything that I've seen dozens and dozens of times in a flashover simulator. You start to see the, the, what I think the, the Drager guys called the, uh, fi- uh, what would they call it? Fingers of flame or something like that. And you can see the gas starting to light off across the ceiling. And I just remember going, Oh shit. You know, I, I knew this was not a good spot to be in. Um, I leaned down, I uh, covered her up the best I could and the room flashed over. And I remember laying there face down and I'm, I'm on my knees with her in front of me. It, basically I'm, I'm pulling her by the shoulders and I leaned down and covered up her head and her face the best I could. And I remember la- laying there, I say laying there, but crouched over thinking, I was like, this is really bad. Um, and I was just remember thinking that if I don't get out of here in a hurry, we're both going to be in the burn unit together. And I remember thinking that, you know, my gear is going to start coming apart uh, any minute now. So uh, I pulled some more, got her another probably six feet and out the door. Um, When I got to the threshold, that's when the video that was taken um, 
by the first new engine operator. That's the video that was shown uh, in the media and social media uh, across the nation. So when I got her to the threshold, I was unable to get her out of the threshold because of, we had a lot of uh, burning debris. The soffit over the front porch was all vinyl. And due to the fire conditions changing, all of that was on fire and dripping down onto the front porch. And there were hose lines in the way. So I was having a hard time getting her out the threshold. So um, when the two firemen you see coming up the steps are my two drivers. Um, so they did exactly as they were instructed. They met me on the A side. Um, obviously, at this point, I was coming out with a victim. They came up, gave me a hand, and we got her down into the front yard. Um as we got her in the front yard, uh, another one of the captains that was another engine captain, I remember him calling and I asked, I think, on the radio for our, our ALS uh, airway bag and drug bags. And we started um, CPR and trying to get her bagged. And, and the, when we got her to the yard, the first thing I noticed um, initially was she was nothing like um, what I, the condition I found her in. Um, when I found her, I can tell you what her nightgown looked like she still had a hairpiece on um she was very much recognizable as a human being she had some severe thermal injuries but she was still in relatively good shape and in my opinion a, a viable um victim to work uh when we got her into the yard i looked at her and it was that flashover sealed her fate unfortunately um so we started working her and I remember uh, the EMS service that runs downtown Atlanta is a hospital-based provider. And I remember one of the guys coming up, checking for a pulse, and he's like, she's 48. She's, she's deceased. So uh, at that same time, I remember looking over my right shoulder towards the front of the house, and the entire house is burning from asshole to appetite, for lack of a better term. It's, it's blowing. And I looked at my, my front-end driver. A uh, very good friend of mine, and I pulled my face. I remember grabbing my regulator, face piece, helmet, everything, and just and pulled off at the same time. And I said, "Where is 22s?" And he's like, "What do you mean?" I said, "They are still inside the building," and it, and it raises the hair up on the back of my neck. Still, um, those guys should be six feet in the dirt right now. Um, I don't to this day. I mean, it was it was a lot of skill, a whole bunch of luck, and some pretty good equipment. Thankfully for them to survive that incident. But when they, when it lit off, they were down a hallway on the Charlie side of the building. And when you watch that video, um, the next time you watch it, you'll see the, the front of the house darken down a little bit and some streams come out the window from the rear side. And there was a lot of talk about whether that was an exterior line, but those guys were inside fighting their way out of the building um, and talking to the firemen and the captain after, you know, the, the guy that was on the nozzle was a pretty new, pretty new fireman. And he just remembered all he kept telling me is like all he kept seeing was captain fire, captain fire. And he that, and that's what he what that's all he was seeing. And he just remembered leaving the nozzle open. Um, we had some thanks God for those guys. They had um, some newer uh, combat hose that was much better construction than the, than the inch and three quarter we were used to running. And that really, in my opinion, had a lot to do with their, uh, successful outcome. Uh, you know, they, they made their way out of the building. Um, and in the process of this, 
the incident commander switched us from offensive to defensive with those guys still in the building. Um, he later admitted he did not know where they were, did not know they were in the building. Um, that's public knowledge. He said it in front of 40 some odd people at three different critiques, um, which is beyond disheartening to know that the guy that's supposed to be tracking your every move has no idea there's anybody in the building. Um, at any rate, at that point, we go uh, back off. The 22s makes their way out of the building. We go back offensive after a decent knockdown from the outside. And I remember going back in, uh, dropping some ceiling, uh, you know, basically just mopping up at this point And just I was smoked. I was absolutely smoked. And I remember leaning down against one of the interior bedroom doors, propped up on a howl again and watching my two truck drivers work. I mean, I was I was just absolutely beat. Um so after that, you know, we get the fire knocked down. Um, uh, you know, we had a we had a hot wash, uh, a quick, um, a quick critique, uh, probably about an hour after everything had calmed down. Um, and unfortunately, I don't know if there was a mistake on our end or if it was on the medical examiner's end, but they didn't come get her out of the front yard for almost five hours. So as if it's not bad enough, you've got a victim under a, a sheet in the front yard of this house. We're parked out front. We're rehabbing out front. It's just like, you know, you couldn't, you couldn't ignore it. And um, so that, that, you know, you, you, when you go through EMT school and you learn about the stages of grief, what are there, five of them or something like that? And I remember like thinking about it and I'm like, God, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling this. Like I, I was, I was pissed off that we weren't able to get her out. Then I was pissed off that she was in the front yard and then I was bummed that we didn't get her out. And then, you know, a couple hours later, I remember walking to the rig and I'm like, God, you know, given the circumstances that she had against her, we gave her the only shot that she had of surviving this fire. And there is nothing that anybody on that incident could have done mostly uh, that could have changed the outcome of this. Um, this is just, you know, I, I, what are the odds that you have a guy driving down a major thoroughfare, wipe out a telephone pole that takes out your first three pieces of equipment. And it's just like everything, you know, unfortunately um, it was her time is, is what I've kind of just come to the fact. And, um, but anyway, we had a hot wash after the incident. Everybody went through what they did. Uh, the battalion chief and then eventually the city, our, we have a citywide tour commander, um, an assistant chief that's in charge. Basically uh, we have one on each shift. Uh, he showed up, you know, they, they gave, Hey man, good job. Kudos, a couple fist bumps, you know, everybody did a good job. Um, we ran through what happened and right away um, there was some issues between the first arriving engine officer and the engine officer that was assigned as the RIT, uh, RIT team. And that kind of uh, got into a heated argument. Um, because of where they were set up, where they eventually moved their line to. And, and they were originally on the uh, AD corner. Um, they moved the line around to the Charlie side. I don't know why. Um, again, you know, uh, the, the gentleman that was in charge of the engine um, sticks by why he, you know, he did what he did. Um, I don't agree with it. I would have done it differently, but I wasn't in his shoes. Um, part of what happened is when they arrived and they were stretching lines, the neighbors came up and were, 
you know, uh, in their face, you know, saying, she's, you know, we got a, you got a victim. There's somebody in the house or somebody in the house or somebody in the house. And they were pointing towards a basement. And apparently, uh, Mrs. Screen, uh, lived in the basement from what I'm told. So, uh, they forced a door on the Delta side into the basement as they well should have and took a quick scan with a thermal imager to see if they could see any victims. Um, I'm not sure if they made entry or not. Um, but when, what they did not do was close the door back after the fact, looking back later, if you went in that Delta side door, went in about 10 feet, you were, had a staircase right in front of you. And that staircase went right up, stop to the main floor into her dining room, right where I found her. So when they popped that door, I believe that it changed the, um, it changed the flow path. And I'm not a, I hate that word. I'm not a big fan of the whole, you know, hit it hard from the yard crap, but you know, the things that surround it. But at the end of the day, the air, the way that the fire was behaving changed rapidly because that influx of air coming from downstairs. So in my opinion, and this is mine and mine alone, that contributed, if not caused the flash. Well, let me rephrase that. It caught, it contributed to the flashover. Um, and one of the things that I told that captain, uh, again, very good friend of mine, I was like, look, man, I, I don't care. I don't, you don't have to apologize to me. Just tell me you understand what I'm explaining to you so it doesn't happen again. And this is, you know, later on in front of dozens of people, a lot of very young firefighters on the job and I, they're being, they were being taught the wrong thing. And he kept saying that he closed the door. He closed the door when in fact the Lieutenant that was assigned to our heavy rescue that night, they were assigned secondary in the basement when they got on scene and the door was still wide open. So we know he didn't close the door. He never admitted to it. And, um, but at the end of the day, we also had a, a, the Charlie side door was burned away. Um, we of course opened the front door because we had to make entry into the building. And then the doorway from the basement to the main floor was also burned away. Uh, where she was found. So again, not 100% his fault, maybe 30%. Um, but I just wanted an acknowledgement that th- he had a hand in what happened and just, just so it wouldn't happen again. And, and he, his guys would understand the guys that were there would understand that what happened with that door contributed to the flashover. And that was never said. So, that pretty much wraps up the incident in itself and, you know, what transpired, you know, we did, we did, like I said, we had a quick critique that night. Um, we took a look at some of the equipment, we were breaking it down and the, the fire hose, the, the first section of inch three quarter that was in the building with us, um, about 15 feet back from the nozzle, about eight feet of that outer jacket of the hose is completely gone. The only thing that was left was a, uh, I believe it looked like a rubber dipped Kevlar inner jacket and it was bright blue. And I just remember going, holy shit, like they were so close to a burn through. Um, so yeah, uh, you know, unfortunately, um, you know, things didn't go as well as they should have that night. They could have gone a little bit smoother. And then, you know, again, this, this grab or failed grab, um, uh, you know, we were able to get her out of the building and did not have to go back and retrieve her the next day. But again, she still did expire. In my, in my personal opinion, that's not a, that's not a rescue. That's, it's, it just doesn't, it doesn't fall into my category of, of quote grabs. Um, you know, so we were out there for probably five and a half hours and got back to the, to the station just before shift change. And, um, that was, that was basically concluded the events that happened, um, that night. 
Right. Well, so much to unpack. And, you know, again, let me preface anything that we say in the next few minutes. I am not the dude that's known for his fire knowledge. I have 14 years on. I haven't got, you know, thousands of rescues under my belt. You know, I've been involved in a lot of, you know, near fatal and fatal fires, but, you know, a very basic understanding. That's why I go to these classes. I want to learn. I'm not an expert. But so just for the layman, for people like me, firstly, what was the fire load? What was actually burning that created the fuel to even create that flash in the first place? So uh, what we came to find out afterwards during overhaul, it was a kitchen fire. Um, the kitchen was on the Bravo Charlie corner of the house. So the left rear corner. Um, I don't know um, because it fatal, fatal fires are a little bit different. Um, I don't know what the final determination of the cause of the, of the fire, but I, I know it did originate in the kitchen. Um, this house was full of leg- what we've always referred to as legacy furniture. So like the good stuff made of real wood and cotton and not synthetics and stuff like that. She was, she had lived in that house for decades and decades. So we didn't have the, you know, the churning oily black smoke that's put off by, you know, synthetics and plastics and stuff like that. It, it wasn't, um, the fire load was normal as far as the load itself. There were just, there were just beds. It wasn't a hoarder house. It wasn't, um, you know, I've seen everything from propane tanks to motorcycles in the front in the living room of people's homes, and there was nothing crazy. It was a regular lived-in home by a 94-year-old grandmother. So if you can, you know, if you can picture that, there was there was nothing crazy about the load or the type of furniture that was in the house that would have helped that flashover along. It was purely a, and I say this in in the sense of of the airflow, but it was like, it was essentially a, a wind-driven event. We didn't have heavy winds outside, but when that door opened, it changed the flow of the air and caused, and so that influx of fresh air caused that fire to basically just to eat, you know, and do what it's supposed to do. It goes towards, you know, path of least resistance towards the, towards the next bit of oxygen it can consume. And then that's basically what happened. All the gases lit off and we had one hell of a flashover. Right. So it's more like unburnt gases that were air that created the fuel, but it was exactly. wasn't that dark, nasty plastic gas that we're used to that, that we see in the modern homes. Correct. You're exactly correct. Right. Okay. So then from your perspective, being a tillerman myself in California, so you had two, two uh, firefighters with you. One was driving, so no pack on his or her back. The other one was driving in the bucket, same thing. So yeah. when you got down, with, I'm assuming that you had your pack either in the seat or very easily accessible. So you got there, visibility was good. The hoses were already inside, you know, ahead of you. And then there was confirmed entrapment. So you, I'm assuming, and please tell me if I'm wrong, realized that with visibility good, with, with the hose line already on you know, the seat of the fire, there was an opportunity for you to do a quick search before this exactly. thing changed. Exactly. And that, and that was a decision that was made um, by me and me alone. I, I, I'll be honest with you, and I've been honest with everybody from the beginning. I didn't look back and see where my guys were to go, hmm, let's see here. It, you know, where are they? Um, I do think I remember a flash of them walking up. I remember for some reason, and, and maybe I've, I've, I've gone through this so many times in my head, maybe I've almost made it up. But I do I feel like I remember them walking past the cab of the truck. Uh, but – no, I, I looked at the conditions we had. And again, this is um, a lot of, this has been, I've spent a lot of time um, doing everything from loading pallets as a, as a rookie fireman 
just trying to get my, you know, trying to get some work and trying to be in, in, I love being in burning buildings. That's what I do. I love that. That's my favorite thing to do is to go inside a burning building. I like being there. So I always, when I was a, a newer guy, I would do a lot of helping until I was, um, until I was, uh, had enough time under my belt to get my 1403 instructor, my live fire instructor. And I spent a lot of time teaching, um, in, uh, class A buildings and the flashover simulators and acquired structures, you name it. And this is, I've got a, a lot of time under my belt doing that. So I made a, a very educated split second decision. Um, there was no checklist in my head to go down going, okay, well, we've got, you know, a line in place. We've got two members on this line. We have smoke conditions this high. I remember just looking and going, this is going to be good. We've got a really good shot at making a successful rescue here better than any time I can remember in, in the recent future. Um, so I made a move and, um, again, had that, I'm sorry to say this, but had that door not been opened, um, it would not have flashed. Would she have lived looking back? Probably not. Um, but I would have worked her all the way downtown to the hospital. I mean, she was in, she was in good enough shape that there's no way in hell I would have, I would have ceased resuscitation on her. Um, again, a lot of time doing that on the, on the medical end of it. Uh, so, and, and the one thing I made very clear at the critiques and with the captain that, that, uh, you know, this out of everybody that was there and, and I don't, I'm not an expert by, or the, or the best at any, at this, by any stretch of the imagination, but I've got enough time under my belt. I think I can make a pretty damn good assessment of what happened. And that's what happened. That, you know, that door opening caused the airflow to change, which eventually caused a flashover. So, um, yeah, that's, that's kind of what happened right there. Yeah. Well, you mentioned as well, that wasn't a grab. So I'm, I'm here to firstly tell you, I disagree hundred percent. And the reason being, I basically was on, you know, full-time firefighter for 14 years. I never, ever, ever had a code save in 14 years, but I sure as shit gave it my every, you know, opportunity, every, did as much training as I could, gave it my all on every, every code that we ran. Um, and that's the thing. I, I, I never forget seeing, um, I think it was called Into the Fire. It was a history channel piece they did on our profession. And it was such a well made documentary because it had, uh, career paid on call and volunteer and there was this volunteer guy forget forgive me you know if you're out there listening and i hope you are um but it was somewhere out in the country and he made this such an astute uh observation he said sometimes you know we find someone you know and you make the paper maybe even they survive and they come to your station and you know and thank you he said but every time one of us crosses the threshold we take the same chance. And I think this is exactly what happened with this. It is a grab. Even if you find nothing in your primary search, you went in with the same intention. Hopefully you trained for that moment. So there's value to every single primary and secondary search. Right. And I agree. And I will never take the value away from that. I guess it's just been ingrained in my head. Um, and it may be, I don't know why. Um, but it's just, uh, you know, if they, if, if you, pull them out and then walk out of the hospital. That's a grab. And, and, my, and that's just, and, and, you know, a lot of guys uh, in the city have made successful rescues and never even gotten anything other than a, a good job from their, from their um, brothers. And some guys have made successful rescues and gotten a metal pin on their chest. Um, it just, it just depends, man. And it's nothing to do with, uh, you know, the city per se. I mean, 
maybe in this case. But overall, it's you know a lot of a lot of guys don't do it for the medals. I I damn sure don't. Um, but if it's it is nice to be recognized every once in a while. So when I became a company officer, you know, I remember as a driver, we had a, we had a successful rescue. Uh, guy uh, was pulled out of a hell of a fire. He made it out of the hospital, and I hope I hope that he's still alive today. But you know, we went back to the station. My, my captain or lieutenant was like, "We're going to write you up for this." And me and me and the guy that uh, assisted the rescue were like, "Man, fuck that. That's just it's, it's what we do. It's our job. There's no reason. There's no reason at all to put us in for a medal." And I remember my lieutenant was like, "Yeah, well, you know, if we don't put you in for it, who's going to get it? Because they're going to give it to somebody." <laughs> we we're kind of like, "Well, in that case, you know." And, and again, we didn't get a medal for that one. I think they gave us a challenge coin. You know, so it's like, again, who cares? You know, it's not about that. Is it nice to be recognized when something weird happens? Sure. You know, but um, again, man, it 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 was an interesting fire, to say the least. And the, you know, the events that surrounded it afterwards made it even more interesting. And um, yeah, led me to the conversation I'm having with you. (laughs) Indeed. All right. Well, yeah, I want to get to to that, but. With the, the metal thing, that's something that I've seen in my career is there is no, no better feeling than when a chief, captain, whatever it is, you respect, looks you and your, you know, your crew in the eye and said, you kicked ass today. That was amazing. And there's no more devaluing feeling than seeing people adorned with unit citations for, as I've seen in Orange County, uh, uh, Florida here, for setting up cha- tables and chairs for a training event. <laughs> so, you know, the medal can, can mean a huge amount or it can be, com- it can be exactly what it is, a piece of, you know, a piece of metal with a ribbon on the top. So I think that, as you said, understanding that, that you actually stepped up and you performed when lives were at stake and the men and women that you respect saw that, that, that is worth, you know, a thousand medals in my opinion. And, and that's the thing that has happened since this incident or since the suspension in February is the support from across the country has just been like nothing I could have imagined, nothing I could recreate. Um, I'm doing everything I can to keep a list of who has sent me challenge coins, T-shirts, um, two other gifts that I can't even begin to explain the value of to me personally, um, and, and just reached out. And I'm trying to keep a list so when this calms down and, and uh, you know, I can I can send them a thank you back, you know, and it's just been that means more to me than any medal that the fire chief can pin on my chest. Um, I've received one medal in my career and I never really wore it unless I was going to our award ceremony. I, I, you know, it wasn't something that that I wore on my uniform for parades or for um Funerals, uh, unfortunately, it's like you either have the highs or the lows when you're in a class A. Either you're going to a parade or a funeral or, in, in Atlanta's case, disciplinary action, <laughs> uh, you know, but, or, or a medal ceremony. So, you know, I, I rarely wore it just in very cer- certain occasions. Um, but again, the outpouring of support, the, the, you know, the, from the guys in Atlanta and then eventually, um, you know, across the country and across uh, – it went, it went across the world. Uh, you know, it's just been, I, I can't even explain it. It's just been amazing. I'm looking at a row of challenge coins in front of me right now, but I just, it's just, it's been nuts. You yeah. know? 
Well, just just as a side note, I keep hearing a ping. Is that your grinder account giving you notifications? <laughs> well played, sir. Well played. <laughs> I don't know how to turn off the. I'm on my Mac, and I don't know how to turn off the text message <laughs> uh, You know, so Paul Gurness, this is partly your fault uh, if you're listening, and I know you will be. So part of that's on him, and you can blame him for it. <laughs> well, I want to say quickly, th- thank you to Paul as well for connecting us. So I didn't say that earlier, and I should have. And any other jingling you hear, I've got a, a black lab that's itching to play and he's got his collar in his mouth tugging at me. So if you hear any other strange noises, that's him. <laughs> All right. Well, as as people know, you were not pinned with a medal, quite the opposite. There was disciplinary action. And I don't want to focus on that because that was just a really shitty decision that I know a lot of people discussed. What I want to focus on is you, the individual, Danny. So you did everything you could to save um, Sally. You know, you pulled her out, you covered her during the flash, you know, you had that moment where you weren't even sure if you were going to make it out as well. What were those days and then weeks like for you personally and, and you know, mentally um, with that kind of inability to save that we all struggle with? Um, you know, the first uh, the first day, um, I don't remember too well other than the fact I caught the local news that night and saw the story about her and who she was and her background as a human being and as a, as a grandmother and, and mother, of course. Um, and I remember sitting on the couch and started to tear up a little bit. And my wife's like, what? And I'm, she knew about the fire. Um, but I remember sitting there with her and I, I had a one and a half year old at the time that, you know, I remember her playing in the living room and I just, I turned the TV off and, and that was that. Uh, I went back to work Sunday. Um, and then the following shift fell on a Wednesday. And midway through that tour, um, the guys that were on the engine, the first two engine, had been sent home via our, uh, our um, EAP. And we had a fire call in the middle of the day um, and I wasn't myself. I wasn't, I wasn't thinking clearly. I was not, uh, I'll be perfectly honest with you. I I didn't feel like I was capable of making the best decisions at that point. Um, And part of that was because about 11 o'clock that morning, I received an email from our internal affairs chief stating that I had charges filed against me because of that incident. And as if the incident wasn't bad enough, um, our internal affairs, I don't know how everybody else's work, but you're guilty until you can prove your innocence. So immediately when that came through, I was just like, you know, this is just, this is the last freaking thing I need. Um, we had a fire call downtown, um, in a, in a hundred plus year old ordinary construction building. And I remember going to that fire call and I wasn't, it, it was bullshit. It wasn't, it, it ended up being nothing. But I just remember being there and we laddered, we went to the roof. It was like a five-story ordinary, six-story ordinary, went to the roof off the aerial. And I remember being up there and just, I wasn't, I wasn't in the right mindset. Um, I contacted EAP, reached out to uh, one of the, one of the clinicians there uh, that I had a previous relationship with. And I thank the world of her and explained to her what's going on. She's like, oh my God, I didn't even know you were at work. We're going to get you out of there. And I was like, please, I, I, I'm either going home on sick leave or, or, or whatever, but I need, and I felt like I needed her backing to make that decision. And she agreed with me. So I ended up going home that night about eight o'clock, I think nine o'clock. 
uh, you know, it took a, a while for the wheels of uh, wheels to get in motion with that. Ended up going home, and I was off for three shifts. And over the course of those three shifts, you know, I was sent home basically to decompress, right? To get get your mind right, spend some time with the family, and, and get to where you can report back to work and go on about your your job. Every day that I was off. I got a phone call from somebody downtown from the fire department saying everything that I was being um, transferred. I was being reassigned to a 40 hour position until I could take a fit for duty test. I uh, received a call stating that I was no longer on, uh, that they were not supposed to give me leave from EAP. They could only recommend it, which is the case, but the fire chief has to approve it. So then they said, uh, you've been off for three shifts. So we're going to actually going to dock you. 72 hours worth of sick leave. And that was the straw that broke the camel's back. And I, and I, I laid into a good friend of mine who was an assistant chief that called me and he's like, and he, he and I are friends. And he said, Danny, don't shoot the messenger, but you're being docked sick leave. And I fucking had a, a, a tirade with him. Um, and so the, the whole idea of going home to decompress never happened because I was being called by these assholes, excuse me, every day for, the three shifts I was off. And it was just like, I was so blown away at their lack of any compassion or anything at all to handle this properly. Um, in the middle of all that, I remember walking up my stairs one night to go to bed and I hit the landing. And I just remember I, I keep, I kept for several weeks having a flashback of going underneath the freeway. We were on a, on a road, you know, going to, going to the fire call. And I remember I just kept seeing this one shot going down, uh, I believe it was Linkwood. Uh, um, you see the strobes bouncing off the leaves. I remember going under the freeway, hitting a stop sign, taking a right onto the street that we were going to. I remember reaching her in the fire. Um, and I remember walking up the stairs and I go, and, and please understand this is not a even close to like, I'm going to go upstairs and stick a gun in my mouth. But I remembered thinking, I was like, this is why people do that. I could not get that memory out of my head. And I, again, I remember specifically going, this is why people blow their head off because they cannot shake certain things, certain memories, certain uh, anything. And, and I just remember being scared to death about that. And I texted a good friend of mine and I was like, look, I don't know what PTSD is, but something is going on in my head that I have no control over right now. And I was scared. I, you know, I was talking with my, my uh, EAP counselor daily, if not a couple times a day. And I told her that, and, you know, but I remember having that thought. And then a couple days later, while I was still off, I sat up in the bed in the middle of the night and I thought my house was on fire. I remember hearing the smoke alarms going off and asking my wife where my daughter was. And I mean, fuck, how do you, I, I, I've, I've never felt like that after any call. And I remember my first trauma. I remember, you know, the person got hit by a car on a four lane highway and was pretty much destroyed. I remember the first, you know, fatal car accident. I know the girl's name. She was in the same grade as my sister in high school at the time. I remember I have all these memories, but none of them hit me like this one. And I think in one of your podcasts, you described or, or maybe one of your uh, guests described having a coffee cup that's full and that coffee kind of sloshes over the side. And that's kind of the way that I felt this one overfilled my cup. And I don't know why, I don't know if it was the circumstances because of the fire. I don't know if it was because of what I knew of her. I don't know if it was because 
of the disciplinary action or pending disciplinary action at that point, the lack of response by the department or a combination of all of it. And thinking about it now, that's probably what it is. It's probably all of it wrapped into one. Just it, I, I felt like getting hit over the head with a, with a ton of bricks. So um, I was out for three shifts, came back to work and uh, discovered on those three shifts off your podcast. And um, Lee Forstner, if you're listening to this, your podcast blew my mind. And that was the first one I listened to. And it, it brought this, it made this more real for me. Um, I've listened to several of your podcasts since with everybody under the sun. And it really caused me to dive deeper into the mental end of this. Um, uh, I listened to your podcast uh, with Blake Stinnett the other day, became a good friend of mine. Um, and what he's doing with Next Run, we've had some pretty deep conversations and you know, the, the mental component of this is, uh, is real. Um, I was never that guy that belittled people early in my career because of things that they saw, you know, it affects everybody differently. Everybody is different because that's just who we are as human beings. Everybody's DNA is different. Certain people can run their entire 30 year career and run into stuff all this, all this time and it not affect them a day. Some people, it affects them on the first and only call that it ever happens, and they step away from this career never to do it again. Um, is this gone out of my head? Absolutely not. Have I fixed everything? Not even close. Um, I got to a point where it was manageable for me, and I'll figure the rest out in the future. Um, I've, uh, you know, I did reach out to um, a uh, physician locally that uh, that does some EMDR stuff. Um, oddly enough, it's like, hey, that was after hours. So, you know, click here. You can send them an email. Guess what their response was? Still haven't heard from them. So thanks really? a lot. I'm glad I wasn't on the, you know, on the on the cusp of going off the edge. Hey, check his spam mail, fuckers. <laughs> right. I'm like, what the who the fuck are you? You know, <laughs> um, I did reach out to Tanya Glenn. I love your podcast with her. Um, and I asked her, um, I believe she was the one that said something about, you know, people saying that, you know, psychologists, psychiatrists, uh, whoever saying that they were, you know, well-versed in public safety. And, and then one of them asking a firefighter how they worked 24 hours in a row without sleeping. Yes. <laughs> and, and so I, I asked her, I sent an email to her and was like, look, you know, I know you're in Austin or Dallas or wherever. But I was like, do you know anybody in Atlanta that, that really does this? Um, because there is a fine line as much as I love the clinician that um, I was speaking with, with the city, she still works for the city. I can't share everything with her because I think she may have a, a legal, uh, an obligation to report back to them. And I wanted to find somebody else outside of the department and was wholly unsuccessful. Um, but I know it's there. I know I need to deal with it. I am not going to deal with it right now. I will deal with it later when it's, when I feel like it's time, but you know, it's, it, it's to a point where it's manageable now. Um, but again, that, that really opened my eyes to who we are as human beings, how we, how we uh, react to things, uh, the decision-making that night. Um, why did I make the decision that I made? Um, would I make that decision tomorrow when I'm back on shift? I don't know. A uh, very good friend of mine who I worked with in Atlanta who retired and ended up uh, going to another department. We spoke the day after. And this guy, I'd walk through the gates of hell with this dude. He's, he's one of the toughest firemen I've ever been around. And he was like, holy shit, Danny. And I, and I sent the videos to him and some of the photos we had. And he's like, 
man, I, I hope I can still make that call. And I was like, I hope I can. I, I don't know. I really don't know. I, I, I can tell you this, regardless of, of the disciplinary action, that won't ever be in my mind. Um, I could give a fuck less. I, I've got my, well, it's not framed yet. I've got a frame and I'm looking at the disciplinary action that was sustained by the department and it's going to go in my office on the wall because that's how much I think about it. I'm just like, you know what? I'll take that. I'll take that 48 hour rip any day to do that again. I just hope that I have the balls to do it again and have the conditions to make it to where it's successful or as close to successful as possible. I don't ever want to second guess the decisions that I make on a fire ground at one o'clock in the morning when I was dead asleep three to 10 minutes before. And, you know, you had uh, Judy Glick Smith on and she talked about flow based decision making. This is what we grind into recruits heads the entire time they're in recruit school and you still grind into your head the entire career. You get to a point where you just act. But the decisions that you make are based upon years, albeit three to five to 30, however many years you've got on at that point, that everything you've done in your career, every fire that you've been to, uh, in this case, you make those decisions as educated and as, as well-versed of a decision, make, a decision that you can make at that point. Um, I will never... Uh, there, there was, you know, because of this is all recently popped up in the last couple of days back in social media um, that I, I have caught. I didn't catch any negative comments in the beginning, um, and it doesn't really matter because as far as I'm concerned, these guys are pussies. If they would do anything other than this, I got no use for them. I could care less. But there is one Internet publication that seems to um, cater to that thought process. And I'll I mean, you can say what you want to. I will never put myself or my crew that I was responsible for as a company officer in harm's way within reason. Um, you know, you think back to, um, oh shoot, the colonel that was in charge of uh, Hal Moore, uh, that was in charge of the first battle of the Idrang Valley in Vietnam. And, you know, before those guys deployed, uh, he said, I intend to put you in harm's way. You know, some of you will not come home alive, but all of you will come home with me one way or the other. Now that's a little bit, they were going to war. We're at the, we're in the fire service. So there are correlations and, and his is a little bit, uh, more serious, but we put ourselves in harm's way to protect the public that we swore an oath to protect. And, um, I will, I will put myself in harm's way. I will put my crew members in harm's way to fulfill that obligation and that oath and what we swore to do um, but I will do that very calculated. Um, the decisions that were made on that incident, uh, were made prior to any flashover or any, any, we didn't have any, any indication of flashover. So again, I will never put my guys in a position or myself in a position to something I know we can't win. Now if shit hits the fan and I'm this, had this been something weird, like a basement fire and I go through a hole in the floor with this woman on the way out. And that's how I, my, my life has ended. Um, I don't want that. I don't want to not come home to my family, but if that's how I go out as as a fireman, then okay. Um, again, that's not on my list of things to do, but I will also not put myself or my guys into a vacant house with no entrapment or anything like that. And then the thing, if it collapses on us and kills us all, that's my fault. 
you know, so it's all, it's, it's a weird position to be in. And most of these guys that were commenting negatively either have zero experience, have no backbone, no spine, um, no sense of what it is to be a public servant and to be a fireman. So I really could care less what their negative, you know, their negative comments are. I, it, it doesn't make a hill of beans to me. Um, but at the end of the day, um, I have to get up and look at myself in the mirror in the morning and set an example for my nieces and nephews and my daughter and my family members to do the right thing, no matter the cost, no matter the disciplinary action. Um, and had I waited for whatever reason, and I'm glad that I didn't go, wait a minute, what if it flashes? Like if that thought process would have happened in an instant and it didn't flash and then she still like, I, I could never live with myself knowing that I didn't give everything I could to her to get her out of that building. I could never, I would feel like such a shell of a man and a, and a fake and a phony and a, a disgrace to the fire service if I had done that. And I'm not saying for anybody that has, has been in that position and not made that call, I'm not saying that what the decision you made was wrong. I'm not calling you a coward, but that's how I would have felt knowing what I know now about that incident. And because I went through the whole thing, I personally, Danny Dwyer would have felt like shit had I not gave it a shot. Um, I, I, I've, I just can't even, I can't even imagine what that would have been like. So I'm, I'm glad that, you know, I'm not glad that Mrs. Screen is no longer walking this planet, but I'm glad that um, we were there to give her the best shot that she had at making it another day. Um, and, you know, that's it. Yeah. So what, what this really, I think an example needs to be brought parallel to this. Um, are you familiar with a rescue from two Henry County police officers that dragged someone out of a burning car? In Georgia? Yeah, that does sound very familiar. Yeah. You know what happened to them? I don't recall, no. They got the life-saving award. Do you think there's anything in their protocol that says you're supposed to run towards a burning building and drag someone? I mean, excuse me, a, a burning vehicle and drag someone out? No. So that's the thing. That's what that's the gray area that you cannot fucking cover with checking boxes in some bullshit training roster when you've seen someone do something poorly once. This is the moment where the the sum of all your training comes together. And it sounds to me like what you had was a moment of flow in that building. And I've had that in fires. I've had that in, in codes. Not very often, but it's you need three elements. You need stress, which obviously we have in pretty much every call of it. This is bullshit. Um, you need the the training. You need, as, as Logan Gelbrick talks about in, in his podcast, he's a baseball player, you know, thousands and thousands of pitches or swings or whatever it is that your expertise is. In our case, it's searches and drills and, you know, hose lays. And um, and then you need to be in fight mode, not flight, not running away, not fear, but fight. You step up and you're ready to fucking do the job that you trained for for all this time. And that was it. You did take into account the conditions. You did take into account there was a nozzle on the fire, that there was a lady trapped, you know, but that was a split second thing and you were in flow. So I, I argue that you do exactly the same thing because you'd fall back on your level of training. And the moment that you, you know, you take what should have been at least a commendation, it doesn't have to be any sort of, you know, cheap trophy memorabilia. 
but someone who went above and beyond on the fire ground, not went, fuck you guys on the truck. I'm going to just go find a window and jump in. You, you made a, you know, strategic, intelligent decision based on your training, based on conditions, based on the severity, risk a lot to save a lot. You facilitated a rescue, whether she made it or not. If she'd made it, how would this have played out? Would you still been, you know, written Absolutely. up? Probably no. not. No. You Absolutely know? freaking not. And so, that's the disgrace of this whole thing. And I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, please. There was a similar rescue made in Atlanta on a different shift back in probably December or January. An engine captain, they had a, a reported fire, a, a confirmed working fire on a two-story apartment. Um, lady is on the second floor, has her two kids in the window. The guy's sling a 24. Kid's not even off probation, like probably three, four weeks on the job. Scammers up the ladder, grabs two of her babies, brings them down. Hell of a job. Captain goes up next, goes in the window, can't get her out the window because she's a rather large woman. She's still ambulatory. And he takes her out of the building. In the process, removes his face piece. Walks her out of the building and was hailed as a hero by our department, by the media in Atlanta, and rightfully so. He did some cool stuff. Was it a legit rescue? Eh, not really. It could be debated. But it looked good for us. It was good PR. Nothing has happened to that guy. Not a single thing. And he broke crew integrity, which is exactly what I was charged with. He did the exact same thing. So what, I mean, what? It's just, it's just mind boggling. So take that now to the mental health side. So let's approach it from a completely different way. You have a man or a woman who, you know, goes through the motions, makes a, an incredible rescue, but goes through a lot of trauma. This is on top of, you know, 10, 20 years, 30 years of, of what they've already seen up to this point. They then have the feeling of guilt because like all of us, Hollywood shows that you pull someone out of a building, they cough a little bit, they hug you, and then their kids run up and say, thank you for saving my daddy. The reality is you pull them out, their skin's all sloughed off, and they never, they never take another breath. So you have the guilt of the inability to save. Okay, then you have... You know, the, the following things, you go back to your family, you're trying to separate the two, you're removed from your tribe, which is your fire station, which is a positive thing in some respect. I'm not saying you should have stayed there, but then you add the organizational stress. You have a person, let's say you've broken your back and then they called every day saying, oh, by the way, we're going to sue you. We're going to sue you. It's no fucking different, but it's worse because it's a mental thing. So you add that organizational stress. There's, there's no reason that you, you went through it. There's no reason that was the straw that broke the camel's back because you were already dealing with, as you said, the coffee cup spilling over. And then you, you add that, those layers where even though you weren't able to save her, the, what we'd be normally used to is coming back to the station and everyone saying, man, that was a fucking awesome attempt. I mean, you know, we can't save them all. You know, it sucks, but it, it was, it was her day. I mean, the, the sequence of events that happened. Sadly, she wasn't meant to survive that, but it, it was the reverse. You, you were treated, you know, with disdain for doing the very thing that we fantasized about when we were in Fire Academy. Yep. It, it, it was a, you know, and that, that had a huge effect um, on me as well. It was a huge letdown by my superiors. It was a letdown by, um, and this all rolled into it. It was, it was a, just the, the, that's the best way I can describe it. Just totally disappointed in every aspect of how it was handled. And again, I could care less about the charges. I really could. I offered um, 
to the fire chief personally uh, in a private meeting with just a few a uh, few of his staff officers and myself and the guys that were on the engine. Um, I was like, look, man, I, I'll, I'll help you. Give me the tools and allow me to write a policy for this regarding EAP and critical incidents and how we're handled. Because he, he told me, he said, Danny, you know, Lou, at the time, he goes, Lou, we let you down. And it's my fault. And he, he took, you know, he took ownership of that. That, that was about it. But um, I asked him, I was like, Chief, I'll, I'll help you write a policy. Let's write. We, we didn't have a policy on, you know, if you have a fire with an entrapment of fatality, you get three shifts off. Or if you have a wreck with an entrapment and a fatality, you get one shift off. There's nothing that exists. And I asked him, I was like, let me write the policy for you. I'm happy to do it. I just don't want this to happen to somebody else. Again, out the window. Another let. It's just like let down 796 from the Atlanta Fire Department. And, and the and the chiefs that and how they handled this. So that that has a big deal because I, I I had faith in those guys, most of them, you know. So when you put your faith and your trust in these guys to be leaders and be um, examples and, and set the bar, and they don't, that has a huge effect too, you know. And the poor poor bastards that have to work there from this point forward now have to know that if they make a decision. To, to go out on a limb and save somebody, they're looking at potential um, disciplinary action. I mean, my buddy was caught, was caught, was literally um, cut off in a house fire about eight years ago. There was a writ activation. It, none of, not a single part of it was handled correctly. And he ended up taking a suspension because it, it was, the, was a member of the crew that was cut off. It's just like, where, why are you suspending him? You know, what about the guy that didn't follow the RIP policy? What about the guy that didn't run the incident commander that didn't do stuff right? It's just a colossal letdown. Um, you know, when that when that couples with an already tense situation, it just makes it a, a very volatile, um, difficult road to travel. Absolutely. You, you want to hear another freelancer story? I would love to. I love freelancers. Do you, do you know the freelancer Coach Keenan Lowe? I do not know. Coach Keenan Lowe is a coach in Oregon, football coach, who one of his students was walking through the corridors of the school with a loaded shotgun. And Coach Lowe actually took the gun from him, realized the kid was basically in crisis, moved the, gave the gun, the gun to another teacher, and then hugged, hugged the student and de-escalated the situation. You think that was his, in, in his job description? But do you think he made the fucking situation so much better? Better, yeah. you know that that's the thing. There are mem- there are elements of life, and I, I the one of the most nauseating things I've heard from some firefighters I've worked with before is with the you know drilling the you know the mass shootings. Oh, it's not my job. It's it's your fucking job to save lives. So if you don't want this to be your job, then easy easy fix. See that little shiny badge on your chest. Just you know, take take, take the little pin out and drop it on the desk and go be the best fucking plumber you can be. But this isn't the job for you. There are, there are going to be times where we're going to have to make decisions that are going to be outside SOPs or SOGs or you know whatever a- other acronym that that you feel handcuffed to. Of course, they're there for a reason. They create pr- frameworks. But there are certain incidences where you have to, um, you know, 
deviate to, to, to facilitate saving a life. And that's the ultimate reason that we do this job is to save lives. So those police officers that coach so many other people that have, have done things that are outside their job description, but either saved a life or at least gave everything to try and save a life. Oh, it's a, it's a, it's a strange world we live in. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think that's it. This is what needs to be discussed. You know, the, these need to be underlined and, and, and shown as erroneous. Otherwise, if you don't say anything, you know, and obviously this was certainly brought to the forefront thanks to our amazing fire service and you know, the men and women that do get the job that are really kind of rally around behind you. Um, you know, this needs to change. You, you can't, we used to talk about this in Orange County. It was the same thing when I first started there. I'd say, you know, it would probably pull someone out of a fire and then die in the process and then get written up for not wearing a safety vest because it was in the road. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, I can totally relate. And it's, it's, it's an area that we have to change. Freelancing is freelancing. Hazing. Hazing is hazing. Making fun of the probie is not hazing. Freelancing is freelancing. Going above and beyond to facilitate a rescue is not freelancing. Well, that, you know, the whole thing that I kept going back to and, and, part of which started the conversation that ended up getting me charges was the fact that by definition, this is not freelancing. I was given an order to search that house. Um, you can say I broke crew integrity, which is what the final write-up said, but they kept saying freelance, freelance, freelance. And I was like, no, you didn't give me an assignment to go to the roof and pop the top. You sent me inside or, or excuse me, let me back up. If you assigned me to go to the roof to vertical vent and I, I didn't tell you and decided that I was going to go inside and search in the basement. That's freelancing in my opinion, but I was given an order by the, by, you know, face to face from the first due incident commander. And then over the radio by the, uh, the guy that assumed command shortly after him, both of them gave me an assignment to search. I completed the search, get, you know, I guess I succeeded in a rescue and, you know, so how is that freelancing? And, that, and again, that's kind of one of those things that I kept trying to bring up to the guys that were there at the critiques that are new that haven't been doing this 10 years, 20 years. Is like this. This is not right. This is by definition wrong. And this is just morally wrong. Like this whole thing. And it was all over a, a bruised ego. Basically, at the end of the day, the, the, the guy that filed the charges just um, was pissed that. He screwed up, and instead of taking it up like a man and, and admitting his mistakes, um, he filed charges on me because of a bruised ego and to also try and deflect off of uh, his uh, his screw-ups. Yeah. Well, well, I'm glad that it's it's out there. I'm glad that you got the you know exposure that you did, not that you were looking for any. but oh, you know. it, was, it was quite a lot. Yeah. <laughs> but it was good. And I hope, I hope at the end of the day that it changes – um, some tactics and some thought processes uh, everywhere. I, I hope it seems to me in the last two to three, four years that there has been a big resurgence of, of grassroots fire department conferences all over the country that are taking it back to the to the root of what we do, why we do it, and how we do it, and that is phenomenal. Um, you know, there's a big thing, uh, the art of firemanship. I believe that's in Harrisburg. There's a uh, PDX conference in Portland, the guys down in Florida. I mean, everywhere there's little conferences popping up all over the place and, and they're taking it back to the mission and, and why we do what we do to protect life and property. And that's it. You know, we've got this whole long, stupid mission statement uh, in Atlanta that 
talks about, I don't even know what I've never memorized it. It's not, it, it just, it has no bearing on my career, but it, it mentions nothing about bravery, nothing about, you know, putting yourself in front of the people you're supposed to protect. It's just, it's all, it's all fluff and bullshit and some corporate thought process. But at the end of the day, we're here to protect lives and property and that's it. And, and, uh, I'm fine with that. Yeah. I think, I think the, the, uh, the phrase risk a little to save a little risk a lot to save a lot it sums it up. That is your mission statement. You know, and train your fucking ass to be ready for that day. You're exactly right. You're exactly right. Right. Well, I want to go to one more topic. I know we've been talking for over two hours already. That's still all one, yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, again, another thing we got in common, you are a probie now for the fourth time. I can totally relate. How is that experience? What a fall from grace, right? No, no, it's been, uh, it's been, uh, it's been absolutely wonderful. Um the department, uh, as I guess uh, some people are not aware of this yet, but I have, I'm retiring from the city of Atlanta Fire Department uh, May 28th of this year of 2020. Um, I have run my last call downtown. Uh, that happened several months ago. And I have accepted a position as a fireman uh, with a small department north of Atlanta. And, uh, you know, they're this what they are doing is exactly what every department should be doing. It reminds me a lot of, uh, I can't call his name right now, but the chief in the colony, Texas, I think you had him on your show. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's been good. Um, I had, a, I had an opportunity to go up there. Um, initially when all this stuff jumped off back in February and I, I put it out of my head, I was like, I have banks, you know, but I'm, I'm not there yet, you know? So, but as the days and weeks went on, uh, we discussed it with family and um, everything that we did. I'm a big fan of doing the pros and cons for major decisions, right? So you write down all your all the pluses and minuses and everything kept circling back that this was the move that needed to be made. Um, it sucks in a sense because I feel like I'm leaving. Um, I mean, I threw my I threw everything I had out there back in June. Um, and everybody in the department from the youngest guy to the oldest guy, I'm sure is aware of the incident. And I feel like part of me feels like, you know, I kind of let those guys down a little bit, um, to fight this. And I, and I know that had I stuck around and was able to get my civil service day, um, to, to get my time back, I would have got my 48 hours back and the suspension reverse. There's no doubt about that. Um, but, uh, I have a a family to protect. And this city of Atlanta does not have my or my family's best interest in heart at, at heart. And um, I had an opportunity to go up to a significantly smaller, significantly slower department. But their primary goal is to take care of their people. They look after their their guys and, and like nothing I've ever seen. Um, and I'm proud to work there. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm thankful beyond measure. For the opportunity, um, had this incident not happened, I wouldn't have this opportunity. I would still be running up and down the road, getting up five times after midnight, um, you know, downtown. And but that's okay. Um, I'm okay with uh, the the hard part was leaving. You know, with 15 years, obviously my pension, I took a, a brutal hit uh, monetarily by with an age penalty. Um, that was a factor. Um, but as far as leaving the city of Atlanta fire department to go slow down a lot, I'm, I'm more than okay with, um, I was 
very blessed and lucky to be assigned to some of the best companies, in my opinion, in Atlanta. Um, I have fought fire off of, and I don't mean all of our rigs, but, you know, off engines, off trucks, off our heavy rescue, uh, as a firefighter, as a driver, as a lieutenant, as a captain. Um, I've been, had some of the best officers, um, some very good crews. I've learned a, a, more than I'll ever begin to be able to explain, but it had run its course. My career in Atlanta had done, had, had, uh, culminated. Is that, is it just, it just, it, it was, it was time. And, uh, so yeah, I, I retire, uh, the 28th. I started my new department, um, two weeks ago. I am in the rear with the gear, mopping floors, scrubbing toilets, and uh, doing all this stuff, uh, the mindless uh, day-to-day operations that a, that a rookie firefighter does. Uh, but they, uh, th- this city was as newly organized as a whole. Um, uh, they started, they broke away from a county and became their own city back in 2008, established a fire department, and recruited some of the best guys from uh, all different departments in Metro Atlanta, some Atlanta guys, some DeKalb guys, Fulton County. Um, but because of their hiring practices and the, their pay, they have been able to select some of the be- like we talked about, the best guys for the position and the best gals for the position. So I'm very fortunate to have this posi- to, to have been afforded this opportunity and um, I couldn't be happier. I think I'm going in tomorrow for my fifth or sixth shift. So it's, uh, it's been a little bit of a change, but, um, I had the last two and a half months off. Um, since my last shift I worked in Atlanta was February 25th and, um, I had some leave I needed to run out and had to get, uh, my left elbow worked on. So in, in that time frame, I took, I needed to get in the right headspace. I needed to get my mind right to make that transition and go from 90 miles an hour to a slow, uh, a slow jog. <laughs> and, uh, I'm thankful that I had that time because, um, I, I don't know that it would have been as easy of a transition had I left Atlanta, February 25th and started with them February 28th. I don't know that it would have been as easy of a, of a transfer, but, I am happy as happy can be. Um, I think the opportunities up there are going to be amazing. Um, it, it's just, it's a great department and the, and the command staff there uh, is phenomenal. Um, I, I can't say enough about how, how lucky I am and, and blessed to be able to have that opportunity because otherwise I would be um, still running up and down the road in Atlanta up all night, trying to come home and, and be a parent and a husband and, um, also with a uh, civil service hearing hanging over my head, disciplinary action hanging over my head. And the fact that um, I, I know that when we went public with this, I knew that it was going to cause a stir locally. I had no idea it was going to go international, nor did I know how bad the backlash was going to be against the, uh, the chief. But um, in the weeks that followed, I was like, well, you know, I committed career suicide for the next three to five years. So it is what it is. But um, I'm glad that that is all behind me and um, we're on to a new chapter in life. So I'm a 41 year old rookie with, uh, you know, broke down fireman. So but uh, it's going to be good. I'm, I'm, I'm very, very happy so far. Brilliant. Well, firstly, I was uh, I think I was either 39 or 40, the rookie in my last department. 
Um, and, uh, you know, people say like, oh, doesn't it suck being on probation again? Like, no, these people don't know me from Adam. I could be a slug or I could be a rock star. I think I fall somewhere in the middle, but you know, the, the, either way, your goal is to, to, to show them that you give a shit and learn their ways. Like, I hate this whole thing. Like, no one gives a fuck what you did in your last department. You should. That's how you learn and, and get better as a department. But when you're a probie, of course, you need to learn the new way first before you start suggesting other things. But I think to have the humility to say, yeah, I mean, absolutely, I'll mop the floor. I mean, you should be mopping the floor anyway, your whole career, because if you think you're above anything in the station, then you've kind of missed the point. Yep. Uh, and at the end of the day, you know, it's a uh, it's a humbling experience. But again, we're all here for the same thing. I don't have to have two bugles on my shirt to make a difference. Um, I don't have to be, you know, it is what it is. We're all firefighters. We're all we are all. Um, here for the same mission, especially up there. They've again, they've recruited and and brought in some of the best people and firemen around. Um, so yeah, I don't I don't give a fuck if I've got a if I've got a single bugle, two bugles, or five bugles on my collar. It doesn't matter to me. We're here for the same thing, and we just want to go to work, have fun, be able to do our jobs without um, you know daggers flying at you in the back, and 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 go home. Uh, go home to your families and go on about your life, you know? So it's, uh, I'm very happy with the decision that was made and, um, here we go on do it again. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, I think that's the thing that people got to understand that when you and I moved departments, we went from being a firefighter to being a firefighter. And that's, that's the thing. It doesn't change. You get to run more calls. You get to run more fires and extrications and, and rope rescues and EMS calls. But people are like, Oh, but what about retirement? Like, ask you, cast your mind back to when you're on the grinder and you're standing on that diamond. Were you thinking about fighting fire or were you thinking about, oh, I wonder what my 401k will look like in 20 years? No, you fucking weren't. So why is that suddenly become so important? You know what I mean? You, you did this job to save lives. Yeah. If you, if you take care of yourself and take the wellness side seriously and fight for wellness initiatives in your department, hopefully you'll retire and have a healthy future ahead and maybe you can find a second passion project and not be a slave to what used to be a great benefit package and in these days in the fire service really isn't. But if that's your driving thing and you've got a countdown app and you're like, oh, only 12 years left till I retire, again, take that damn thing off your chest and go go find another job. You know, But it's not the end of the world. If you find yourself in a department for whatever reason, it's not working. Anaheim, I, I fucking cried like a girl when I left because I had to move geographically back to the East Coast. My crew was the most cohesive crew I ever had. My last apartment, I fucking chuckled when I left. <laughs> it was completely <laughs> different, you know, but that's it. You are not shackled to one department. Your passion is to be a firefighter. So if you're not happy, if it's not the right dynamic where you are, A, try and try and fix it, try and be part of the solution. But B, find a better department. Find one that's a better fit for you. And that's that's great that you were able to do that and carry on being a fireman. And I, in my opinion, the best position in the entire fire service is the firefighter anyway. Yeah. And it again, um, man, it's just I feel like the opportunities there to, like you said, to, to make changes and to th those the the guys that are in charge of that uh, the executive staff there are they're all about the, the personnel. They're all about their people. And it's a family. Um, again, not a very big department, not a very big city. So it's nice to be able to have that kind of backing and support. And 
Um, you know, one of the things that was said during my interview is like, you know, we, we appreciate what you did. They, they thanked me for what I did. And that's why, you know, we, you know, part of the reason why I was there, you know, and, um, to have that support from everybody from the HR manager to the fire chief, to the assistant, to the you know city manager, the company officers, the firefighters, and a lot of these guys don't know me. Um, you know, they know the story, obviously, maybe some of them don't, you know, but, you know, uh, I said it in another, uh, another conversation the other day, um, a guy told me a few weeks back, he's like, I'm just, I'm just a nobody fireman from nowhere. And I am too. I'm just, I'm, I'm just Danny. This is just, this has gotten so crazy, but uh, you know, I'm just thankful for everything that happened and had this incident not happened. I, I, again, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be at the new department and, and everything happens for a reason. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think you're right. I mean, with the, you know, I'm just a fireman. That's, that's, that's what's funny is when you do see egos creep up, you're like, you realize you just do the same job as everyone else. One pant leg at a time, bro. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, even when the people look down at, at transport medics, like look on your, your shoulder, you have the same fucking patch that we do. You know, that they're, they're not less than you. They're not, you know, better than you. We're all, we're all signing up to do the same thing. So yeah, that's great that this recognized there. All right. Well, let's transition to some closing questions because it is gone 10 o'clock here in the, on the East Coast and we're getting a little late. Um, so the first question, um, what's your favorite video game? Damn you, James. I'm, I'm just fucking with you. What's your favorite Damn book? You. <laughs> <laughs> Try to be good and prepare. And I'm going to go with Contra on that one, though. Contra? Do you remember Contra? No, I don't. Oh, my God. I think it was, uh, yeah, Nintendo. It was a uh, military, like, uh, shoot 'em up, kill everybody game back in the 80s when, when we were kids. But uh, I'll tell you what, James, reach out to me. If you can figure out the Contra cheat code, we'll have another conversation. Okay. I'll have so to Google I, it. Yeah, I, I, can tell you the, I can tell you the cheat code right now. But if you can figure out the Contra cheat code, I'll buy you a beer the next time you're in Atlanta. How about that? <laughs> Sounds <laughs> good. <laughs> All right. So what about favorite book? Oh man. So, uh, the last, um, I'm, I'm again, because of all of this that has happened, um, the last year I have knocked out a bunch of books, but out of the last year, I think my favorite, um, probably was call sign chaos. Uh, what a book. Uh, I can't say enough about it as far as leadership, um, uh, where men win glory, um, about Pat Tillman, another phenomenal book. Um, I'm I'm really big into like leadership. Uh, I'm not too much big into fiction fictional books. Um, I like leadership. I like uh, military uh, books and and stuff like that. Uh, the book Boyd was phenomenal. Um, another one, another great leadership book. I've got a few in the hopper right now. I've been trying to read Tribe for God six months, eight months since I first started hearing about it on your podcast. And uh, trying to get that one down, and then uh, the the men, the mission, and me. Uh, also trying to; those are both in the hopper right now. I've got them. I've got them on the nightstand in my in my night or my bag for work. And uh, so, yeah, those are those are my favorite books as of right now. Brilliant. Well, Tribe's only 120 pages, so put that to the top. You, it will blow your mind. I mean, I've read it, I think, three times now, and I'm not someone to read a book more than once usually. But yeah, Sebastian's on on the show twice for a reason. I think. He's such a neat guy, and I, I knew a lot of his uh, a lot of his documentaries and in the history, um, you know, with him and Tim Hetherington and and 
So yeah, I, I can't wait to finish that one or get get into it. Really, I'm, I think I'm about six pages into it, so I haven't I haven't had a chance to get into it too deep yet. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think the, the same way that Doc Parsley blew my mind was sleep. Sebastian with the, with the whole tribal thing and and the, the, how right. that ties into mental health was was just mind blowing. It suddenly was like, all right, everyone that enters any sort of tactical profession needs to read this book. Awesome, good deal. All right, what about a movie? <laughs> Man, they, it spans a wide, uh, a wide array of uh, stupid comedies, and um, you know, going back to you know, growing up, I loved uh, Caddyshack, Animal House, Top Gun, Back to the Future, all of them. Um, there's so many movies to list. Uh, gosh, oh, those are all the basic ones. I'm sure there are some really good ones that I'm forgetting, as far as you know ones that I walked out other than like wedding crashes where you walk out of there in tears and your abs hurt from laughing for the two hours previous. But, um, yeah, man, I've got movies, movies, a hard one to nail down. I'd have to say probably if, if I was, you know, somebody at my uh, funeral asked which movie I quoted mostly, it would probably be back to the future. One of the back to the futures or a top gun or something like that. So, Probably one of those. Brilliant, brilliant. All right, what about documentaries? Any any you've seen that really struck you? Oh man, again, Sebastian Younger, uh, Restrepo, uh, probably one of the most mind blowing, um, real documentaries I can remember. Uh, it, it just, it was just a. I've watched that one several, several times, and um, the feats that our military has gone through the last uh, 20 years, almost 20 years is just unimaginable to the civilian and to the regular, regular American. And um, those guys went through it. Uh, you know, again, um, I, I can't say enough about our military and, and how much I appreciate and my family appreciates everything that they do and have done and continue to do on a daily basis. So yeah, Restrepo was great. Absolutely. Great all right. Well, then next question. Is there a person you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military and associated professions of the world? Yes. And I'm so thankful that nobody has beat me to this. Jason Bresler. You know what's funny? We just, Did somebody get me? No, we just texted back and forth. Someone, I forget who it was. I don't know if it was, it was Belissa Vranich or, or okay. it was yes. someone like yes. Belissa. But she mentioned him and uh, Lionel Crowther, the Canadian fireman. Okay. Um, had just done uh, actually was was planning a conference they're doing at the end of the year and Jason's going to be speaking and he asked if I would come over so I'm trying to get over there as well um, and I don't know I just had one of those moments where I was like shit that's someone I meant to to reach out to a long time ago so we just text I think I think either Saturday or Sunday we're going to be talking so that's going to happen hey, very soon good he um, I took his making yourself hard to kill on the fire ground at FDIC in 2014 um, and then after that got into leadership under fire, again, reading Boyd, um, I started down their reading list of suggested reading materials and watching what he has done. And they've got a, uh, you know, the leadership under fire. I'm not sure if you're aware, they've got a podcast that they do, um, that is fantastic. And it's similar to yours in the sense that, they don't just stick to firefighters or military or anything like that. They, they have brought in, you know, division one lacrosse players that played in college and what, you know, just all different types of leadership and, and just good stuff. And, um, I, I was very thankful to have to, uh, 
uh, have a beer with Jason after the conference uh, in Indy and um, pick his brain a little bit. And since 2014, he has started the mental performance initiative with the FDNY. I don't even know what that all entails. I've got so much stuff that's in the works, but um, I would love to get up to there and, and to learn more about what he's doing. But he also does a conference of sorts in September or October every year. And uh, our, our friend Paul Gertis went to it last year. And I told him before he went up there, I was like, dude, I haven't even seen this guy in six years. But this is going to be a defining moment in your career as a firefighter and as an officer. And he came back kind of mind blown. Um, what Jason's doing as far as leadership and changing how uh, we do things. The one thing that, blew, that really hit home with me was um, operational tempo on the fire ground. And he was um, a, a Marine combat commander and did several tours over the last, uh, ever how many years, uh, Naval Academy grad, just a super sharp guy. Um, I think a lot of them, I think a lot of his team and what they're doing. And I'm really hoping I can get up to um, Annapolis. I believe it's in Annapolis. No, it might be in Annapolis. So we're up in Maryland uh, towards the end of the year. I would really love to get to their conference this year and, and see what, what else they're doing. But uh, yeah, I would love to hear you interview him and see what, see what else is going on with that. Yeah, absolutely. As you just realized, I think that the, the thing that jolted me back into making sure I reached out to him is when I heard I think it was your interview with John, and you, you mentioned that podcast. So, yeah, you were actually the reason why yes. I reached out, but I guess I preemptively did it. <laughs> so. Hi, well, as long as you get him on there, lock him down. Um, uh, you know, he's a uh, fireman in Rescue 2, or was a fireman in Rescue 2 in New York, and I believe he drove or worked for Chief Salka for a while. So, just the, the, I mean, wow. You know, the, the guy's just, uh, he's got a lot to bring to the table. Um, so I'm, I'm really looking forward to, I'm glad you're doing it. And I'm looking forward to uh, hearing the podcast. Yeah, no, me too. Me too. Um, all right. So then last question before we make sure people can find you online, what do you do to decompress? What do I do to decompress? Uh, this time of year, you will most likely, if it's beautiful outside, I will be floating on my boat with my wife and daughter and friends. Um, of course, we will be staying six feet apart for the foreseeable future or as, as close as we <laughs> as far apart as we, we deem necessary. Um, but no, you know, honestly, um, just being at home and um, I love going to the beach. We try and make a couple runs down to uh, the panhandle of Florida a couple times a year. And then every few years, try and sneak off uh, somewhere to the Bahamas or the Keys. Uh, if, if, if there's a beach in saltwater, I'm there. I, you know, uh, that's, that's a lot of people go to the mountains to decompress. The minute my bare feet hit the sand, I'm in a whole different place. Everything that's going on good or bad is, is out the window. That's my decompression. And it's, it's a weird feeling. It's like everything just goes right out my feet into the sand. And, uh, so that's, that's my happy place is definitely at the beach. Brilliant. Yeah. We have some gorgeous beaches here. My, 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 uh, favorite beach is Crescent beach, South of St. Augustine. Oh, okay. I've I've never been to uh, St. Augustine or the Tampa St. Pete area, um, the East Coast of Florida. I've been to uh, Orlando and uh, oh gosh, we went to a Club Med facility somewhere south of somewhere south of there. But then I've been up to Amelia Island and stuff in that area. Fernandina Beach is beautiful. 
Um, but we usually, uh, Destin, Fort Walton, uh, Santa Rosa Beach area is a, is a easy five, five and a half hour ride for us. Uh, so that's a quick trip, uh, especially with the toddlers. So that's where we frequent. Love it up there. Brilliant. Down, yes. All right. So then the last question, if you want to reach out to you, they want to learn more about anything online, where are the best places to go? Um, I'm on Facebook like everybody else in uh, the world. I'm on Instagram as well. Um, and then uh, email, you can reach me at tailboard, the number 10 at gmail.com. Um, and, I, and I can't stress enough, I've, everybody that's reached out via Facebook Messenger or Instagram or whatever, you know, please feel free. If you have any questions about the incident, any questions about operationally, you know, I'm here. I, I want to do nothing but make um, the fire department better, make the fire department great again. You know, so, um, you know, but yeah, I, I'm here. Please reach out. Uh, you know, I will do my best to answer. And, you know, I've got um, in the last week, somewhere around 250 requests on Instagram. I haven't gotten all of them yet. There's more, I think, in Facebook, probably going back to February when all this went went down. Um, you know, I'm trying to I'm trying to get to them all. And I'm sorry if I didn't, fr- you know, accept your friend request yet. But uh I'm working on it. So uh, again, the outpouring of support has been great. And I, I want everybody to make sure that they are, they're all truly appreciated and the messages and stuff have uh, not gone unnoticed. They just may have not gotten to yet. Brilliant. Well, I sent you like seven grinder requests, but I haven't had anything back yet. <laughs> I, I like blondes, dude. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Those grays are kind of blonde, isn't it? <laughs> right, right, right. I'm in the same boat, buddy. If I had to, it'd be great. So. All right, Danny. Well, it's been like two and three quarter hours, but I think that's what we needed to do. I mean, as you know, I, I just let it go till it finds an organic finish. And I think we had lots of cover. We had a lot on the training and ownership side. We had a lot on the, you know, the national fire department you know, lessons learned side and then obviously the actual incident and the ripple effects of that. So I, I really appreciate you being so generous with your time. Please apologize to your family for me for, for taking you for so long. But, uh, you know, I think it's going to be extremely valuable to everyone listening. I sure hope so. And, um, again, I, I can't thank you. You, you know, you're, you and what you're doing with your podcast is why I am where I am in a manner of speaking. So thank you for everything that you've done and continue to do for, um, the fire service for, you know, with regard to leadership and mental health, um, it's just been, I, I don't, this is going to sound cliche, but I don't know if I could have pulled this out without your podcast. You know, it's just, it's been such an eye opening experience. And I've, I'm so humbled and thankful to be sitting here talking to you almost a year later is, uh, is still mind boggling to me. So thank you very much for what you're doing.